Hey, Hidden Pearls podcast fans, friends, and followers, and family. Thanksgiving and everything. So, um, so I uh, hope you enjoyed the segment with uh, George and Alex. Uh, great conversation. Uh, in our MVP part with emerging vets and players, we are very fortunate to have Staff Sergeant Dustin Holcomb with us, um, who uh, was an Army, uh, was involved in the Army for seven plus years until he was wounded in a deployment in Iraq and came back. So he shares a little bit of his story with us. Um, and I just a little cautionary, if you're listening with little ones or you're sensitive, um, Dustin's story gets into some graphic detail around some combat situations. And I would just encourage a little bit of caution around that. If that's a trigger for you, a problem, then be careful. Uh, also, there's a little bit of vocabulary, of course, not by me, but uh, Emma kind of goes off on a handle once a little bit. So just be careful. There's a little bit there. So I hope you enjoy the show. Um, I think it just really reveals uh, impact of military service and the sacrifice that our veterans have made and continue to make and the difficulties they face with their transition. So uh, really hope you enjoy the show. And uh, again, our thanks to Dustin for his service and being on, on the show with us. So thank you. All right, everyone. Good evening. So the Niners have returned home after a big trip to Florida, bringing home a 30 to 10 victory over the Jags. Felt good. On Sunday, we host the five and five Vikings fresh off a big win over the Packers. Our player guest this week is a seasoned veteran, but new to the Niners this year, Alex Mack. So grateful to have you here. So big warm welcome to the Hidden Pearls podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Cool. Alex, thanks for being here. Let's go, Alex. All right. Wow. Is it my turn now? This would be your moment. This is your moment, My moment, Alex. My time to talk about me. I'm terrible talking about myself. Talk about you. Talk about me. Come on, baby. It's right in here. All right. Alex Max Bio. He was born in the L.A. area. Wow. No, no, no. You don't have the new one. You got That's one edit he made. I didn't get it to you. Fairbanks, Alaska. Fairbanks, Alaska. Fairbanks, Alaska. Well, why does it say LA, Los Angeles, California? Because that's what's all over the internet. Because you why can't all... on Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, okay, wait, wait. So, Alex, why why does the internet say you live, you're born in Los Angeles? Because someone put that in Wikipedia, and I just never bothered to fix it. Because I grew up in L. I grew up in uh, Santa Barbara, so okay. like LA area kind of thing. And so, like everyone just assumes you're if you grew up there, that's where you're from. But uh, when I was two years old, my family moved from. Fairbanks to Reno, Nevada, and then when I was like four or something, we moved to uh, Santa Barbara. Um, okay, so thank you for setting me up for failure, guys. But we we take coach on the sideline and we got to apply it to the game right then there and there. So from Fairbanks, Alaska to Reno, Nevada, all the way to LA, just like my copy of the bio says. Thank you so much for that, guys. All right, let's just we can fast forward a little bit to high school. Your name, the Channel League, or is it Chanel or Channel League? Channel. Channel League. Almost oh, valuable player. Very fancy high school. Very Chanel fancy League. Chanel High School. Claire <laughs> says that that's where she graduated from. Um, Chanel, baby. Let's see. You earned a first team all league selection on defense. And in addition to football, you wrestled for four years with the Royals. You only lost two matches. No, I, my Here's senior year. I lost senior year, lost two matches. When I was younger. Wow, that's pretty impressive. If you get better, you lose less. It's, it's fun that way. Yeah, I like that. 
you uh, went to the University of Cal, the Golden Bears, the Fighting Bears, Fighting Bosas, and you earned three-time first-team all-conference. Wow. That's pretty impressive, my guy. Good for you. Oh, my goodness gracious. You're drafted by the Browns with the 21st overall pick in the 2009 draft. Now you're in your 12th year of the NFL. 13. Sorry. 13, actually, George. Sorry, man. Wow, you are crushing me. Do I need to? Do I need it's to- all me. We made the edits, but then you didn't get on right away. We didn't have time to correct. Sorry, that I forgot. No, that's totally fine. I appreciate right. it. Um, you know, we'll just have to start this whole thing over, I guess. Just kidding. I uh, played for the Browns for quite a while till 15 through 15. Then you were the Falcons and now you're with the Niners on a three-year deal. Nice. We're happy to have you here. Uh, you're three-time second team all pro and a six-time pro bowler. Whoo. You're named the all decade team in 2010. It's a long I played. Wow. That's a lot of accolades, my guy. Congratulations. Thank you. Much deserved. Wow. And we have Alex Mack here on the podcast tonight. Through a little bit of errors, but hey, it's okay. You got to make mistakes to get better, I guess. We'll watch the tape. Well, sometimes that defense doesn't line up exactly where you practice, so you got to be able to roll. It doesn't you get a lot of weird looks out here in the podcasting world. I know, man. Well, let's uh, let's jump into uh, Santa Barbara. Um, played football and wrestled. I don't know a ton of other people who have done that. So, um, tell us about your wrestling career. Wrestling was fun. I, it wasn't fun to start because like you're terrible and you don't know what you're doing and you just get like beat up on. But as you get better, it gets really fun. And I, I started wrestling because we, we just started a new program my freshman year and they made everybody in off season football, just join wrestling to like bring up the numbers. And so like I automatically did wrestling and I was pretty good at it. And so I kept doing it and then it got better and it, it was pretty fun. I definitely think it made me a better football player and definitely helped develop me and learn balance and a lot of, a lot of other things. The other major thing it teaches you is just like confidence. Like if you're in football, you're like one of many people. And if you win or lose, it like maybe is or isn't your fault or, you know, your, your responsibility, but in wrestling, like, you're the only one out there. You have no one else to blame. It's only on you. And the better and more you work, you get all the benefit. Like if, if you were better at wrestling, you'd win more matches. So like if you work harder, you'll get better. And so it, it just really taught you how to work hard and you know, persevere. And so I think wrestling's great. I really enjoyed it. I really like am a big supporter of it. And I think it definitely has helped me you know, be here today on your podcast. Are you a fan of pro wrestling? Uh, no, I don't. I never got into it. Not say like I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, just never, I never like really watched it much. Uh, yeah, I never got into it. We'll go to. We'll I don't really watch much sports either. Like I never watched football growing up. Like I didn't. I think it's on the script here somewhere coming up. But, like, growing up, like, I didn't have a favorite sports team because, like, I just didn't watch sport football. You know, I just I just liked playing it. I just thought it was a really fun game to play. It doesn't mean I was, like, a fan of the game. So, like, I just kept playing it, and now I'm here today. Right. Well, it's true about wrestling, though. I think it does, like, because I coached to a line, and uh, all my guys, we do the pummel drill. You know, we stand chest to chest. You fight for inside position. And then we'll do a blow whistle, and then it's whoever moves the other guy five yards. And just for lowering your hips, you know, and body contact, 
and fighting for that inside position, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's, you know, all those kind of things, plus the conditioning and mental toughness. And you're right. There's just, there's no one to share accountability with. It's like, it's you and the other dude in front of the whole crowd. And there's like, there's no hiding what happens. So it's pretty cool that way. In football, you can have like the best game of your life and still lose the game, or you can have the worst game of your life and like your team still pulls ahead and like you win. Wrestling, you can't do that. You can't have your worst match of your life and somehow win it. No, unless the guy's pretty bad. But anyway, so, okay, uh, let's see. Yes, it's possible. Technically true. True. Um, well, so any siblings? And if yes, who was, or yeah, do you have any siblings? I have two older sisters. Mm, so which so one of you is the toughest? I would say that goes to me. I think I no. People don't usually say that. I don't think we've had anybody say themselves. <laughs> I like toughest. it. Alex Let's go. I love yeah, it. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I think that, like, uh, how, who, who do you have on your show? They're, like, they're all football players, right? Yeah, I know. Oh, not the toughest oh. one. I know. They all say their older brother or somebody or else. Or their mom. Yeah, or their, yeah. That's pretty funny. No, I'm oh, oh. I'll be the toughest one. Okay. That's terrible on the podcast. Big headed. No, you're wrong. I'm born in Fairbanks. <laughs> Alex is in full control of the show. I love it. I like it. I'm here for it. Okay. Um, okay. So what was the hardest or best lesson that your family taught you growing up? Uh I think the best lesson I learned was that, like, I don't know how to concisely put this, but just in terms of what do you want to do in life and your effort and what you put into it is going to put you there. If you are happy to, like, you know, be a janitor, like, you don't have to be good at school. You don't – I mean, I I don't make fun of janitors, but if you want to, like, work at McDonald's for the rest of your life, like – you don't have to try hard in school. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to have like everything you want in life, you got to put the work in and like go out and do it and study in school and wake up on time and do stuff. And just so just always had a really good work ethic. Uh, I think they just instilled that, you know, you don't have to, but if, if you want good things in life, you've got to work for them. There you go. The old hard work lesson. Yeah. And hopefully there's a connection between that hard work, effort, your focus, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, kind of what you end up producing and getting to. So, yeah, no doubt. Okay. Well, good deal. All right. Let's see. Then uh, you ended up with the Cal Bears. And uh, now I don't know if this is accurate or not. but It said the choice came down between Cal, Stanford, and Northwestern. Yeah, it, it kind of came down to that. Stanford didn't really want me. And that hard, makes it hard for it to be really a choice. I know oh. I wanted to go to Stanford. I, I liked California, but Santa Barbara is not a football powerhouse area. So, like, my options were small. My recruitment was very low. And so it was – the only reason Cal recruited me was because I went to their, like, football camp, and they liked the look of me, and they'd never heard of me before, and they offered me at this, like – full contact camp right. and Stanford didn't give me the time of day. And then really late UCLA offered me for uh, D line. But by then I committed to Cal and I wasn't sure I would be any good at football. You know, like I'm not a big recruit. I was like a two star or something. Uh, and so it was all right. Like 
if I'm terrible at football or this isn't fun or I, I'm not good enough to play in college, I can get into Cal and then because it's a state school, I can afford to like go here and, you know, thank you very much. Sorry, football didn't work out. But it, it turned out I was, I was good enough at football. And, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it really was about like, all right, football. I love football. I would love to play. But maybe like you never know if it's for you or not. And so I, I chose Cal because it was the best academic school I could go to. Right. And so I knew that was going to set me up for the rest of my life. And that was the driving force behind it. Because uh, you, you watch shows like, uh, what is it, uh, Last Chance You? And they're like convinced they're going to make the NFL. And that's a really long shot to put all your eggs into that basket. You know, it's so hard and it's so difficult to make it. Like you should really be focusing on school. And you, you want to like, you want kids to know that, you know, like you don't want to like, not to like crush your dreams, but you know, have a very solid backup plan and be good at school. Cause you can be good at both. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can be a, a great football player and still study hard and do the right things. Yeah. You told you, well, told, indeed. you could do that. You could. Cause you actually came out of high school with a 4.2 GPA scored over 1100 on the SAT and we're rocking it. So that's, you know, the real Testament two sport player and all that kind of stuff. So, and then obviously when you were at Cal, you graduated the three, six, one, I believe it said with legal studies. I don't know yeah. if you're going to be a lawyer. Is that, was that the plan? You're going to go to law? Was, Just I mean, that was like a if football didn't work out. That would maybe a, a career path I would have taken. Uh, I, I don't know what you want to do when you're, you know, 18 years old exactly. major. It's so tough. I thought if I could leave college, with a better understanding of how society works and law and the legal system, that would be useful somehow. And then I can go on and go to business school or go to law school or, you know, find a job and something else. Right. But that was the plan. Well, it seems like it worked out and you won the Dratty trophy. Am I right on that? Am I getting that right? Okay. Which is considered the, that's called the Campbell trophy. Campbell. Okay. That's what I want. Okay. That but, I've heard of. I, I hadn't heard of the draft. Okay. So that's a pretty big deal. So very, very, very nice. Congratulations on that. Okay. So tell us at least one great thing or one of your favorite things about attending Cal and being a Golden Bear. Uh, I mean, one thing is tough to do. I mean, the, the coolest part, I remember when I decided to go to Cal, I had just left a, like a football practice and I was walking from the stadium over to like the dorms I had to stay in. And I had, it was like a bright, beautiful summer, summer, sunny day. You could see all of the Bay Area. There's the Golden Gate Bridge. There's Alcatraz. You could see all of Berkeley in front of you. And I was like, this place is amazing. And like Cal's campus is these like big Greek architecture buildings. And it looks like really smart things are going on in there and I'm pretty sure they are but it's just this really impressive experience it's like this place is cool like I want to like this is this is gonna be hard to top so that was like my first real memory of Cal and being like this is neat and then when I went to Cal my favorite uh class was uh physics for future presidents it was all the physics a future world leader would need to know and so you could, uh, 
it, it was all like the principles of how the world works without any of the math to bore you, bore you down and slow you down. So it was just really fun to have this like really smart teacher to tell you, this is how the world works. This is how this happens. This is what's important. And it was just, it was an incredible class and I, I loved every minute of it. How difficult was the class for like someone just accidentally taking it? I would say it was tough. Like you just had to like pay attention and kind of listen. Like, it wasn't hard. Like I, I did all the reading because I just found it so fascinating though. So I really like just enjoyed going to class, but I, I think his, his job there wasn't to like catch people and make sure you weed them out of physics. It was to get people entertained and, you know, into it. So I think if you get everyone an A, he was happy to do that. If everyone learned. And George, your, your favorite and then your hardest class at Iowa. My favorite class? Um, I had a minor in entrepreneurship and I thought that uh, I had a really awesome teacher named Bob Walker. Um, he was awesome. He taught me like, I, had, I think we had to take six or eight classes for the minor and five of my six classes I got him. And it was like me and like three or four other football guys. And he would have us over for dinner and stuff every once in a while. Super cool guy. Uh, but I just like entrepreneurship because like it just, whether it was other than finance, that, that was not, not a big fan of that one. That was a difficult class for me. Uh, but all those other classes, like they applied. And like, I was like, wow, I'm actually learning something. Like I built a business plan for a restaurant in Iowa City. Stuff like that. I really enjoyed that. Um, hardest class. Other than I was not, I stopped, I found a loophole when I transferred high schools a couple of times. And I, my last math class that I took was my junior year. And I didn't have to take of high school. So I didn't have to take another math class after that. I kind of like snuck through something. And um, so like I, when I got to do finance, like my redshirt seat junior year, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know how to multiply. Numbers. Yeah, like numbers. Whoopsie. <laughs> But that was a difficult class for me. But other than that, no, the entrepreneurship class was fun. I was a comm major. I can, I, I can, you need me to write you a, like a B plus paper or B paper? I can knock that out. In a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> I got a good back story behind that one about math. So my hardest class at Cal was freshman year to calculus. And like, went into the final with like a B plus. Like, pretty good understanding. I was good at math. And then at the final, you know, when you take a test, like good test taking uh, practices, if you don't know the answer, you like skip that one and like go on and then later come back into the other question. So they like, looked at the question and didn't know how to solve that one. So go to the next one. And I flipped through the whole book. I didn't know how to answer a single question on the oh. And I was like, <laughs> What do I do now? You know, like what do I do? You know, like I, I, they're not giving me the right answer. Like they, they need to give me more stuff than these questions are asking. Like this is impossible. And so I, I went from like a B plus to like a C, C minus or something because just tanked the final. Oh, and that's when that's when I gave up on being a uh, business major. So that's when legal studies became a more. Did you get any of the questions on the test? I, like I showed credit, like work, but you know how you usually like to solve right. X, you need like or solve for Y. You give they give you like A and B, and you solve that and use X and whatever with normal stuff. Well, they didn't give you A and B. They gave you like C, D, and F, and you had to use F to find E and E and D combined to make you know. Like, it was all this crazy others like higher level than you would have needed, 
and uh, it, it was. I think we should file a formal complaint. I'm, I'm outraged. Yeah, this is tough. Well, I don't feel too bad for you. I was a business <laughs> major, and so had to finish statistics and all that other BS. But anyway, did you um, did you meet Rachel at Cal? I did. She played tennis at Cal. Mm. Can we get the love story, please? Uh, I mean, we can get into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> That's I, what I, our I, listeners I, really want to know. I love these. She entered, she entered a uh, dark and dingy bar. And I saw her from across the bar, and she was gorgeous. And then her boyfriend followed her in after that. And so I proceeded to keep tabs on her until she broke up with that boyfriend. And then I pounced in with, like, a random roommate when there was some dinner she hosted. I got her number, and then she – I got her to go out on my first date with me because I was babysitting my uh, coach's dogs, his dog sitting – and so she was like, do you want to have this puppy? Do you want to go for a walk? She was like, yes. She <laughs> uh, Who can resist that? It's a wow. good play. Well done. All right. I was smart about it. That's pretty cool. Well, very nice. Okay. Uh, any other? Okay. Uh, well, then you can do that thing. Okay, so transitioning to the NFL, um, another big-time first-round draft choice. So tell us about being picked in the first round. Uh, pretty cool. It, uh, what about going first round was like where you want to go. And I thought I was going to be pick. I think we said like 20 to 30 was like around the window we were hoping I'd go to. And the big thing with draft picks and everything is you get more chances at the you know not making it the higher you're picked because if you're a first round pick and you suck well they're gonna kind of try to help you along and give you a second chance or maybe coach you a little more or something and then if you're a seventh round pick and you suck well they'll find somebody else they'll cut you and get rid of you and you're done so the, the higher you you're picked the more likely you are to succeed not only are you probably better and more gifted but you just are going to get more help to like make it because you have gms and coaches and everyone who are like rooting for you to make it and they're giving you because if you if you end up sucking they look like shit yeah they look bad right so it's on their own self-interest they want to make sure that all the first rounders succeed so they get a little extra hand so someone gets to hold your hand walk you down the aisle, make sure everything's okay. A lot like being a fifth rounder, I would think, don't you think? Fifth round pick, it's going to be tough. I mean, it's it's hard. I think the big lie in football is that the best people play, and that's not necessarily true. It it has a lot more to do with – I mean, the, the, if you're amazing at football, you're going to find the field and you're going to make it. You're, you're going to do great. But sometimes the – people who they have put more money behind or more draft capital behind are going to get a little extra shoves and helps than other people. And that's just what the truth is. And, you know, it's tough. Uh, But, you know, not to say I was terrible and they needed to give me tons of help, but I showed up, I was drafted in the first round and the center for the Browns took it great. He helped me from day one, helped me out, like coached me all he could. And I can't be thankful enough for that. Like he, was I, I took his job. What was his name? 
Hank Fraley, he's now the uh, O-line coach for the Lions. But he was just like an amazing guy, super helpful, you know, a true professional. And I can't, like, I love telling the story because he was just such a good dude to me. And I show up, I take his job. He's better than me when I first show up. Like, I'm not, I can't see the feel. Like, I, I'm just not, I'm not, I wasn't quite good enough. And I, I thought I caught, you know, caught into it quickly, but just to have him kind of help coach me and tell me hints and tricks and, you know, just be an awesome teammate was really helpful. And so I, I think that really helped me hit the ground running and like get good pretty fast. When I ask you a question about him, do you remember any like a tip that you still remember that he gave you like your rookie season? I just remember like we were doing like a play. We we're running like power. And so when power and the guy slants or something, you're supposed to like slow down and like take him along with you or, you know, it just helps if you know what people are going to do. And he was like, hold on. Like, like, Oh, it's coming across. And I was like, what, how do you know that? Like, well, you can see the safeties rotating down and this guy's over here. And he, he just saw like the whole field. He knew like he'd be up there in his stance and instead of just like looking at the, you know, the one person who's blocking, he would see their safeties rotating over and this guy moving and different levels of the, the linebackers. He just played football for a long time and knew what was going to happen. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 this is happening oh, over there. And, you know, and it was like, oh, wow, this guy sees everything. And so you just knew that, like, all right, that's what it takes. You have to, you know, I need to try to see everything now. That's really cool. That is really cool. You know, that's one thing, though, Alex, that we've, uh, I think, consistently heard. We kind of talk because that story about the transition, uh, for some people, it's harder and longer and more difficult. You know, we've had people who are free agents and low-round drafts and all that. And it's people have been cut. They're back working construction and all that kind of stuff. But um, invariably, every single person has talked about there's one other person in that locker room, at least, who, when they got in, you know, helped them survive that first year or two. And that's a pretty important trait. So that's pretty cool. Well, hats, hats off to him. That's a great that's, thing. He calls it a light. Someone threw you a life vest, like your rookie season, just because, yeah, you just, you're drowning. You have no idea of expectations, the, yeah. like, anything that goes into it. You're just like, I'm just playing football. There's a lot more that goes into it, but you don't even understand that at all. Sorry. And then, you, like, I, I remember thinking that I'd have, like, a ton of free time. Like, I didn't have school anymore. I didn't have to do like homework and study. I was like, oh, I'm going to have so much free time. I'm going to have all this time for like hobbies and stuff now that I'm, you know, in the NFL and like, no, like I am fully busy doing football all day long, every day. Like there is no free time. It is constantly doing football stuff. It, the game gets just way more complex than it was in college. Well, and what was the most difficult lesson in, in the transition from college to the NFL? Uh, I mean, just like another great story I love telling is just in college, you played against one guy all year long. That was really good. He would be the really good, talented D lineman or whatever. And he would be the guy you highlight. And the next year that guy would be gone. He'd leave and he'd go to the NFL and then you play, you know, keep playing football and you know, whatever. And in the NFL, every single person on the team is that one guy. You know, like everybody is that incredible player and he, they could be backups. And it, it, they're just the, the level of talent is just goes so much higher. And then you have like, uh, I, so I played in Cleveland my first couple of years. We had like Haloti Nada 
twice a year when he was in Baltimore and like he, he just stayed around there. So for like six years, we played this guy twice a year. And that's like a lot of games against someone who's really, really <laughs> talented. It's just really tough to like, there's just no, like there's no escape. Like you just have to like play all these really tough guys and everyone's really talented and everyone's a professional and it's like everyone's livelihood. And it's just the level of skill and talent importance and com- complexity at the NFL level is just really, really high. Yeah, and the, the effort because people are trying to make a living doing it. So everybody's trying where hard. Like in college, like not everyone's trying because like everyone's just, hey, I'm playing football. Like it's just like the mindset just I feel like it's totally different. And then, yeah, once you, you said it, like once you get to the NFL, everybody's trying to be great. What well, most people are. Yeah. Most people are trying to be really good. And so they try really hard. It's just, and if you're not giving great effort, like somebody else will. And so that guy's going to be gone and he'll be replaced by somebody who will give great effort. And then you got to deal with that person. Right. Okay. Well, cool. Well, then one of the things that you're noted for um, that you've done a pretty good job uh, and obviously, and I think both the, the conversation that we just had about how complex and all the time that's involved, I think that's a really hard thing for people who aren't in the game to really understand. And then I think the other thing that I think people don't get is that by this time of year, 10 games in, everybody's injured somehow. You know I mean? Everybody's hurting. Your bodies can't go through that kind of level of contact and, you know, physical violence. So, but I'm going to go back to a couple of things in your career, which kind of tagged that, because if you don't have as an NFL player, the ability to play with pain as opposed to injury, and I, I know that's a fine line on some occasions, um, you're not going to make it very long because it's just the nature of the game. So if we go back to 2011 and week five, Rumor has it that you played through an appendicitis during a loss to the Titans. Then you had an emergency appendectomy during your bye week. And then you came back and started against the Oakland Raiders the week after the bye week after having that surgery. Is that a yep. true story? That's true. What the hell, dog? We would pretty- not have, if we knew we had appendicitis, we would not have played that first game. We, we didn't <laughs> know it was appendicitis. I just had like didn't feel good I had a fever and I wasn't like I thought I just had like the stomach flu or something okay I I play the game not feeling great you know wake up the next day still don't feel good now it's been like 36 hours since I've eaten which is rare and I'm just (laughs) not crazy And like just feeling terrible. And, and then the, the doctors were like, all right, well, let's just make sure it's not the worst thing. We've, we've tested for this, but like, we'll just really make it. So they sent me over to get a CAT scan of my uh, appendix. And, you know, 30 minutes later, after I drank the terrible fluid and, you know, you, you got to wait around, they're like, well, we're going to the hospital right now. And <laughs> you're going to have your appendix out. And then, you know, just they did it in such a way that like I could play in a week's time or whatever without any risk of injury. It just hurt. I was like, all right, well, I want to help my team. So just right. play through it. Yeah. Being able to play with pain. So, okay. Then oh, I, I need to toot my own. Oh, you're going to. Okay. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, just to toot. I also played in the Super Bowl with the broken leg. Oh, we're getting there. That's, oh, okay. that's in the yeah. script, but come on, baby. Come on. Tell, tell us the story. Well, then maybe that was different. So then in 2014, I think against the Pittsburgh Steelers ended up with a broken fibula, which you end up losing the rest of the 2014 series. And I guess the point for that one is prior to that injury, 
you had never missed a single snap in your entire professional career between 2009 and 2014. Is that a true story? I'm pretty sure. There might have been a game rare that the Browns ever were winning a bunch, so I don't think it happened. But you were like, you're blowing a team out and you get benched just to rest. But I don't think that happened before that time. Right. So, but I mean, any with any meaningful snap, you played every single snap for those those years. Yeah. That's that's an amazing kind of credit to you because, again, I think what people don't understand is being able to play with that because no matter what, you get your foot stepped on, an ankle tweak, elbows hurt, you know, all those different wrist pains, shoulders, you know, just all the stuff that happens. And so being able to put that together, that's really something. Okay, then, so let's follow up. Tell us the Super Bowl story then. We're so, wait, 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 wait on this. Before we get to that, yeah, leading into that, before I ever met Alex Mack, I've heard about Alex Mack for years because one of Coach Shanahan's favorite stories that he shares with the team every single year is a Super Bowl story about how Mack played with a broken leg. And so it always made me appreciate. I heard that story in my rookie, yeah, my rookie season because someone was like, someone had like a minor injury, and he was like, "Look, he goes, I had a guy play at the Super Bowl with a broken leg, like." And we we're like, oh wow! So he started sharing the story with us. But like when I heard that, I was like, oh, I mean, that's some that's some gritty that's some gritty shit, and it's, it's awesome. And so then I finally get the chance to meet you and play with you. So I've always been a fan since my rookie season. So I appreciate you. And no, I, I don't recommend you. breaking your leg to try to play on it. Just, just okay. Not. Tell us the story, sir. Tell us the story. So like I I, I broke it in whatever it was 2014. So I broke it first there and they put a plate in and they refixed it. And I missed the rest of that season because the ankle, you know, wasn't attached anymore. So they needed to let that, put that back together. So yeah. 15, 16, I go to the Falcons and we end up getting a hot streak and winning late in the year in the NFC championship game or playing for the championship and halfway through the game, running back lands on my leg and like, oh, it didn't feel good, you know, and, you know, finish the drive. All right. You know, go on the sideline. And I, I remember like moving my leg around and like turning to like one of our other linemen. I was like, pretty sure my leg's broken. Like, I'm pretty sure I can hear that bone clicking around in, in there. And so like, uh, all right, like it's working right now, you know, so <laughs> keep going. Let's, let's play this yeah. game. You know? Let's so, wait until yeah. it actually ruptures and comes out the skin level. Right. Yeah. We, I think we booted, like I, I had them like tape up my ankle. Cause like they weren't sure. And they were like, yeah, it's just like, it's a sprain. Like you're fine. So we like tape my ankle up, finish the game. We beat the Packers to go to the Super Bowl, And like, wow. Like what an experience. Cause like I, I, I had never won more than five games in my life in in the NFL till that year. Like I just spent seven years in Cleveland and we, we never broke five wins. And so to make the playoffs and then to make the Super Bowl in the first year with Atlanta was just incredible. So like, we, like confetti and people are celebrating and we're like fired up to go. And so, like, I am, like, at an all-time high. And then we go to the x-ray room, and the, like, x-ray tech is like, ooh, we're good, you know? So, like, leg's broken. So, like, broke my fibula above the plate. So the plate's here, and it broke, you know, above yeah. that. And so, like, feeling high, like, feeling low, you know, feeling <laughs> terrible. 
And then uh, she's like, yeah, graph. That must be a cow bear thing, right? You're signal. Graph. Yeah, you know, emotional <laughs> level low, man. Uh, so like feeling great, and then you know, <laughs> the doctor, and it was like, oh, like you know, it's 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 a uh, it's a high break on just the fibula. That's only like ten percent of your weight. Like you can play on this, and so like jacked up again, like <laughs> in Super Bowl, you know. So like it, it was really exciting. So like for two weeks preparing for Super Bowl, I'm trying to get this as good as I possibly can, trying to get that leg and everything, you know, feeling better. And it, wait, wait, with a break, I mean, what is there that you can do besides nothing, like and just let it heal? We, we shot a bunch of red lasers on it, you know, like anything you could. I did like the sleep chamber, like just anything possible that you could possibly do for that two week period. Like I was getting treatment on it just trying to make it as good as I possibly could to good so like I didn't do anything that whole two weeks like I was how was the Super Bowl like I was in the training room you know like <laughs> I didn't do anything but it was really exciting to like be able to play in that game to be there and be on the field and do everything else and it didn't turn out the way we wanted historically uh but <laughs> It's tough. Chance. Like that. I feel real lucky to, to be able to just say I was able to play in a Super Bowl. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. A lot of guys never do. A lot of guys that have six, seven, ten year careers and never make a Super Bowl, let alone win one. So that's for the playoffs. That's pretty cool. I mean, I, yeah. I was year eight and I had made the playoffs for the first time. Like, wow. So there we go. Well, by golly, 221 will be that year again. Here we are. We're going to get to football in a second. Okay. Then, I came here. That's right. Okay. So here's what, just kind of recapping, and you've kind of offered, so I don't want to go too much. But so going into the 13th season, or this is, just kind of curious, like, as you step back, because we talked about some of the lessons you learned in the transition year. But, like, what are some of the biggest lessons over these 13 years about kind of surviving in the NFL? And I think one of the things – just being around George and this whole thing, you know, is um, the transition from season to season about how much a team, you know, the personnel on the roster changes over and good friends come and go and that kind of thing and critical members of the team and all that kind of stuff. And then, and you've been through, now this is your third team. So just, you know, what are some things that have helped you kind of ride through all those things and survive? And what are some of the lessons that you've kind of picked up? Uh I'm always the biggest thing I could always tell anybody for any job or hobby goal, whatever is like the, the work you put in is what you get out of it. So like hard work and being committed and doing the little things and making good habits are what is going to bring you success. And so the other thing, you know, for football, if you want to be successful in the NFL, it's boring. It's not flashy. It's not fun. Like waking up early, working hard, watching film is not this exciting, adventurous life you necessarily have. I think it's very much you're putting in time, you're putting in work, you're, you're, you're going to bed early, you're eating the right stuff. Like that, that is what it takes for most people. I mean, I'm sure there's some people can do all kinds of crazy stuff and still be successful, but that those are 
keys, I think to me, what have, have taught me a lot of my success. And then another not so fun takeaway is that it, it just, it's a team sport. And so you've got to do your part, but there's a lot of things outside of your control. And only thing I would ever want of my teammates or I, the teammates would want of me is me to play my best. And so just every week, putting in the work, doing the best you can, and hopefully things work out. You know, it's hard as a lineman, especially to single-handedly win a game. I just have to hope that everything I've done helps as much as I possibly can. And I would be one step ahead to make that block because I put that much more effort into it. And that's the way I try to play and try to play the game one way all the time. O-line Creed. Like just, you know, it's as important as your first and second step and your hand placement and your hat placement and communication, all those kind of tiny little things, but which is, I know, common to a lot of positions as well. So, okay. And then how about just, uh, you know, you've dealt with, I don't know how many agents you have. I don't know who your agent is. And there's so many other things that circle football, but like what are maybe some life or people lessons that you've taken away? You know, that, you know, what kind of wisdom have you gathered over these 13 years that, you know, just kind of more the business end of things that you've had to deal with over these years? I, the big thing I've seen is the game. I mean, it, it is a game, but it is a professional job. You have to take very seriously and people will try to come and visit. Hang on. People try to come and visit and uh, like, do stuff, but like, I'm, it's my job, you know, like I, I can't just, I would love to like go out and have dinner or whatever, but like I have, you know, meetings later. I need to, so being boring and, you know, making sure that people around you know that I'm stressed about work and this is really important to me. And I'm stressed about this stuff for the season. And so like, I am not exactly available to do everything in the season and just friends and family know that like, I can, you know, I love all of you, but like, I just, you know, I can't, I can't make that. I won't be able to do this, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And then the other thing I would tell any like younger player or rookie is that, you know, I never wanted to go backwards in life. So just because you made in the NFL, I was always scared that at any moment the game can end and then I, my earning power has disappeared. So like, I'm going to like, people think you have all this money and you can spend it and do whatever, but like, listen, like I, I'm, I'm scared, you know, like, I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know if this like is going to be my last play or my last moment. So I'm not going to be throwing money around like crazy because every dollar I spend when I was a young player specifically is that money I can't invest and help grow and do stuff. And so like, I never did anything like, so I, I now own a couple of nice watches because like, that's something I thought would be a really cool thing to own. But like, I figured out what like a Rolex watch costs when I was a rookie. I was like, I can't spend that. Like that's outrageous. <laughs> There's no way I would, I'm going to spend that money. And so, like, I, I waited till I was 30 years old. And by se year seven or whatever it was, I then got myself a nice watch. Because at that time, I thought, like, all right, 
I can now afford to do this. If I don't play another day of football, I'm not selling this watch kind of thing. Right. This is just okay. a nervous yeah. attitude. And I mean, well, but you bring up some really good points. And so just like to summarize, though, one is, you know, you talked about really good habits, you know, doing the little things. But the other thing is, I'll just call it in general, this notion of kind of resistance, the things that get in the way of doing the habitual things that lead to peak performance or great performances. And so being able to curtain that and, and that is setting boundaries, saying no to things, because every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And so you want to make sure you're saying yes to the right things in order to be successful. And then on the other hand, yeah. And then the financial side, that's really important too. And that's one of the stats, you know, with the NFL, you know, players that play four more years within three years after being in the league, 80% of them, you know, don't have any of their money left. And that's a terrible stat for the NFL, you know? And so there's a lot of work around trying to increase financial literacy and investments and all that kind of stuff. Just so just what you said, just being patient with it. Um, I think people really underestimate the value of, you know, just interest bearing accounts, you know, in the stock market and the value that it can do. So letting that happen and making sure you're taking care of yourself for the long term and not just going for the immediate gratification piece. So, so that's pretty cool. So um George, do you have any, have you, yeah, what just in regards to that, like any lessons, you know, off the field that being Mr. in the NFL has taught you? Mr. Year five. Um, well, I mean, some of the, the sports and I think, uh, I think applies to life as well. Um, you need to have a good foundation and a good circle of people around you. Um, other, like for me, like I have my family, I have Claire, um, I have people around me that, like have helped me get to like put me in a position where like financial and stuff like and put me in a position to be successful. Like my agent did a good job of like helping us kind of steer us in the right direction. My dad did a ton of research about the things that we needed to do. Um, but we've just got people in place for us that have just made the, I don't know, like this, the years go by and like the money that came in was I was able to do things with it and not just spend it on. I think coming from a family that, I mean, what we did all the time was like, we didn't work, spend a lot of money, but we'd go like on uh, like hiking and like vacations that we were driving around and have fun like that. And that's just kind of the same thing I do. Like we do, you know, me and Claire like to vacation sometimes go to some fancy places. But other than that, like I'm very much like you, um, it's a boring life. Really. You spend all your time in a training room, keeping your body healthy or just, you know, rehabbing something that is nagging you um, or you're at home and you're studying or just trying to have your brain wind down a little bit and get away from football because the weeks don't stop coming and they just keep coming and coming and coming until the season's over. And you want to make sure that you have something enough to, to look back at and you're, you're proud of it. So yeah, you've got to hit everything on the head that I kind of think about the same way, Alex. So I appreciate that. We, we think similarly, like the most yeah, exciting thing I do in season. Is, like, yeah. The most exciting thing I do in season is like, I like to go to movies and we'll rent a movie theater and we'll go see a sick movie. Yeah. Well, he is an offensive offensive lineman, so it's all good. Okay, Uh, Alex, and just real quick, we want to spend too much time because we're going to kind of get into the rest and get you going. So I appreciate you've been great. So thank you for sharing all that. Um, So we run something, part of our uh, little business is called Mindful Awareness of Performance, and we work with athletes on kind of just their mental prep for games and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of a meditation mindfulness approach. But I'm just wondering if, because, you know, with 13 years in, uh, obviously the mental game is really important. I mean, not just understanding the X's and O's and seeing the safety rotate and all that kind of stuff, but, 
you know, game prep and your confidence and all that kind of stuff. So just wondering over the years, do you have stuff? So, you know, some of the things we work with are meditation, visualization, affirmations, all kinds of, there's all these, you know, things about trying to help develop those habits that you're talking about, but also getting your mind right. If you have a bad play, I mean, one of the things I talk with offensive linemen about, you know, you give up a sack, you can't let that last play impact the next one. Cause if it's, you know, so let's say it's second 10 and you're throwing the ball and you give up a sack. Now it's third and 15, you know, you've got to be able to still block that three technique or that nose guard or whatever. And so how do you flush that play or any of that kind of stuff? So are there any kind of, kind of mental prep kind of things that you do that have helped you stay on course that you feel are really important? Uh, I mean, I think something that's really important that I don't see enough of is people taking notes. Sounds uh, cool. like, I think you should really be writing things down. And I'm a, a visual learner kind of person. So I know how I absorb information. I see much better when I write it down and I can see it on the page I retain information a lot better. So I know if someone says something important, I write it down. And so I'm writing stuff down all week long. I'm taking a lot of notes and I, you know, watch practice and film and, you know, writing stuff down. I write down, you know, questions I want to ask. I write down all the notes from the week. I like edit those notes when things change. Um, and I, I write down like the technique I want to be using and how my technique is looking and, what do I want to do? So before practice, I can go back and look at like, all right, like I didn't like how my first step looked. So better first step, you know, it seems silly, but it's just, just something. So when I'm at practice, I'm, I'm working towards something. I'm doing something. I have something to work forward. I'm not just going through the motions. There's, there's things I can be doing out here and see if they work better. And then I watch that practice and I see like, is my first step better? Like still not better, you know? And so do I need to do something else? So, and then before the game, I go through all those same notes. I mentally go through it all. I, I think about all that stuff. Um, and then I, I think about what is my technique? How do I want it to look? What are the things I would think about right for the snap in making sure my technique is best? And so I, I have those things in my head. I have the notes written down on them. And I, I think about that stuff pregame about, you know, I want this hand here. I want that, you know, I, I, like this is how I want things to look. And, and so I, I go through all that before the game. And then if things are going good or bad in the game, I know that the only solution to that is, all right, I can do my effort and I can worry about my technique. And if those two things I cover, that's all I can be asked of me. I'm doing the right stuff. I'm like worked on my technique and like, I'm trying as hard as I can. There's nothing, I don't know what else you want from me. And so those are the things I focus on. Yeah. And you know, the note-taking, we've, that's been a common theme with some of our players. And so that's a pretty cool one. And it's interesting for a lot of guys, the note-taking, and the film work and then the practice notes that kind of leads into kind of their visualization process. Cause now they've got a really detailed outline. They review those notes. And then, like you said, you're kind of seeing and thinking about exactly how you want that play to look versus different fronts, how the combo is going to be, where you're going to pass it off, how you get to the linebacker and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so a little bit of visualization within that piece too. So, well, and I have a question. So, I mean, you're 13, like what's the, Talk to me a little bit about recovery and taking care of your body. Like, are there 
any sort of like specific things or treatments that you've done that have made the biggest difference or things that you would recommend people getting into like now? Uh, I mean, for my body, I love, I, I get a lot of massage now. So I get massage twice a week and that helps my body, you know, stay loose, feel good. I think it helps prevent injuries, uh, like gets refreshed. So that's something that's really important to me. And, you know, I, you know, sorry, can't go to dinner. I have a massage. That, that kind of stuff goes on. Uh, and then I have like Norma Tex and like a game ready just to ice stuff down and try to flush and get things feeling right. Uh, those are the really big ones for body wise. And then just, you know, nine o'clock rolls around. It's generally bedtime. And so being good about turning off the TV, starting bedtime and be like, Oh, pumpkin, yeah, you gotta go. And so just being disciplined about, you know, that kind of stuff. And so if you're getting your sleep, if your body feels right, you know, drinking water, uh, I'm a lineman. So I don't have to worry about too much about my diet. I just need to, you know, stay big. So. Um, Alex, do you have like an alarm? Like what, what time do you get ready for bed? What time do you try to be asleep? Like Tuesday night, we were up at rehab starts at six 45 tomorrow. What time are you trying to like wake up tomorrow? I try to get eight hours of sleep. I usually work backwards. So yeah. I want eight hours of sleep. So I'm waking up at six. So I need to go and be asleep by 10. I think that's how the math works. How do you do like, cause I mean, my routine, I mean, just since I've been with Claire, like we've had to tweak it and alter it because, you know, married. But um, like, when do you guys get ready for bed? Just asking. Nine o'clock. Nine yeah. o'clock. For about an hour or two. I have an yeah. alarm. I have an alarm that goes off at nine o'clock. It just says, like, get, go to bed. Just go. It's like, okay. Sorry, we can't finish the episode. There's eight minutes left. Ah, I don't care. I got to go to sleep. Time to go. Yeah, it's tough boring that's what boring people do they have an alarm to make sure they go to sleep at nine right oh oh hi puppy yeah but here's the thing sundays are not boring no you know what i mean getting the chance to walk out to suit up and to play somebody and you guys are still in a playoff run which we are totally expecting so just putting that pressure on so all right well let's jump so we got like three questions left and we're not gonna take too much long so George, I don't know if they, Alex, did he talk to you about the fashion preview? He mentioned something. I have a pair of shoes down here that I'm terrified. So, uh, oh, cool. Let's go on. Talk to us about your game day swag and what do you got? Oh, there's no game day swag. I have zero. <laughs> but, you know, like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I, I have a pair of Converse. Like, they're, they got cool flowers on them. Ooh, nice. That's like, awesome. Like, so like Converse makes it's kind of beat up because I love them a lot, and so you, you wear these around. But like they're just like fun summery shoes. Okay. How has your game day non swag um, changed since you've been in the league? It's gotten worse. Uh, so like early on, I was like, oh, I got to worry about like you know what to wear, and then eventually like I'm a lineman. No one really cares what I wear, and I don't really want to focus on like to me. That is like the last thing I really need to worry about. I have all this other stuff to worry about. So like, I think for the past couple of years, I wore the same shirt every game day. Not because I was superstitious, because I was lazy and I just didn't want to care about it. And so I just like, that, that was what I had. I didn't have to worry about this and just have that one shirt and, you know, move on down the road and you wear it for, from parking lot to the, the locker room. Right. 
Ah, so like to me, it's just not an important thing to me. Like I, I just don't care much and I have other things to worry about and I'm not that, that flashy. You're, you're not worried about how you look in all those post-game interviews? No, they don't really, they don't ask me to do many of them. And yeah, I, I just, <laughs> I, I respect it. And also like, I, I think it's important to be professional and look right. And it's business trip and stuff. So like, I'm not just wearing some t-shirt, like it's got a collar on, but it's just, I'm not pushing the trends of fashion because it's not something I'm that passionate about. Uh, and yeah. What'd she say? So get me some Jordans yet. <laughs> I, okay. it, yeah but i it just it, it's just not what tickles me you know like and, and so like i i can appreciate other guys doing that but it's just like i'm i'm worried about other stuff most of the time it's probably not what your segment of swag wants to hear on the show no oh, it's, this is pretty similar to all the lines yeah we've heard yeah our, our own d line not all the d line but it's pretty common. George, what about you? What do we got this uh, week, George? Two things, Alex. Well, actually, maybe just one. What uh, what's what shoe size are you? Fifteen. Fifteens, and then um, do you have any idea how many offensive linemen you have in the room? Uh, I think we're at like thirteen, maybe fourteen right now. I'll ask. Okay, but these uh, I, I like wearing dunks, uh, Alex. Oh. Pinky's up, brother. Oh, Pinky up. These are the dunks that I'm wearing. Uh, I've been wearing. Big fan of them. They, I think they released them like they released a while ago. But um, they're the De La Souls. Big fan of them. I'm kind of in the front. You know, like nice little detail right there. I like all the multicolors. I thought they were kind of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shoes. Is kind of how I saw them. I see that. Yeah, but I'm a big fan of these. Um, I just like the dunks because they're low. I don't have any effort to put them on. They just slide right in, and I don't have to tie my shoes. And they look really cool. So I'm a huge fan of these. These are beat up. And the other thing I have a hard time with, like, I don't want to take care of my shoes, as you can see. Wear them to wear them. Wear, wear your sneakers, man. I just beat them up. And then, like, I feel bad if I have a really nice pair of shoes. Like, I'd be careful with my feet. Like, that's not, I'm not used to doing that. Huh. Okay, that, that's an impressive swag. Okay, I'm just going to read a couple things. Not much about the game this week. We'll talk a little football. You guys can say nothing if you don't want. Niners 5-5 five five, beat Jags last week 30-10. Vikings 5-5 five five, beat the Packers 34-31 on last second field goal. They are jacked up and making a run. Uh, Jags was a great win. I know you guys have talked about it. We're five, at 500, even at 5-5 five five with seven games to go in the driver's seat with their own destiny. So it's all good to go. So 10 wins and we're in for sure. All right, Vikings. Vikings history. Okay, teams have played 48 times, six times in the postseason. You Viking fans that might be listening, if you remember the last time, 2019 with a butt kicking, whipping. Anyway, uh, Niners lead the series 24 23 with one tie. Interesting. Niners have won four of the last six, and that last one was the beatdown in Levi's in 219. We welcomed them back for another version of outside zone and Zorro. Anyway, okay. Um, so just offering, uh, I know you guys haven't done much into Tuesday. So a lot of the pregame stuff and your prep and all that stuff. So anything on the Vikings you want to share a report on or thoughts on the game? Uh, 
Not yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. Super early. Yeah, you know, it's it's going to be a big matchup just in terms of like two teams in the hunt. Uh, and it's going to be tough. All these games are going to be tough and all these games are important. And they're in this league, no matter who they are, if you don't show up, they're going to, they're going to beat you. So you have to be ready to go. And so I think it's going to be a, a big week. I think it's nice that we get a little extra time to rest. Like last week we came off a short week. So I think having today just to like not be practicing was nice. So we can hit the ground running tomorrow and hopefully keep the fire high. Fire yeah. High. Very cool. Georgie, any thoughts? Um, well, they play in one of my favorite looks. They use six techniques as defensive ends with no outside linebackers outside of them, which to me is everything you ever want in the run game. So I'm excited to see if they actually stay in it like they did in the playoffs or if they're going to switch something up and come out a different front or try to surprise us because I just – I think you're crazy if you try to play us with that type of defense. I think our edges are way too good at blocking. I would just never tell a team that. George, edit this out. Got that. <laughs> but well, it doesn't get posted till. Yeah, it doesn't get posted till Saturday afternoon. So I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I know. But I just if you watch the tape, man, if they come out like that, they come out on a fifty-five front. I I don't really. I just I see it, I see Trey Williams is way too good. He makes everything so easy. So he makes me very confident in what we do. Well, good. Well, I mean, if the Jags is any indication, the last two games, you have great opening drives, taking 12, 13 minutes off the, you know, getting points, defense rested. I was looking at Nicky Boza. I hope he wasn't too tired. He had 35 plays in the entire game. You know what I mean? He played three plays in the first quarter of the Jags. So that's a beautiful thing for that defense. So it's all of them. It's unbelievably the complimentary football you guys are in right now the last two weeks is. Just uh, it feels you can just feel kind of the Zen balance of the whole thing. So it's all good. Okay, Alex, real quick. What were your thoughts on the because it was it was 22 plays. Two of them didn't count because of penalties. But like how exhausted were you? I was tired. I was tired till like the third quarter. Like, Thank you. Dude, I was on the oxygen tank the entire first half. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, I think those when you are able to have long drives. I think that really takes the wind out of other teams' sail. It's like you're able to like drive down the field the, the nitty-gritty way. And I think that means a lot. Versus like it doesn't mean much. I mean it's great because it's points, but if you get like one play, 80-yard touchdown throw, well, you didn't prove anything with that. Like you got lucky kind of for one play, but can you repeat that? And to be able to have like two big long drives definitely took a lot of wind out of their sails, I think. A 20-play drive, it is like a gut punch over and over and over. And think about the offense, too. You get the ball back. They're sitting over there for 12 freaking minutes off the clock, which is really like a half hour at least. And they're just sitting there watching you pummel their defense over and over and over. And then those guys got to come back out. They get a three and out, and now it's the same dang thing. So I'm all good. It's it's beautiful football to watch. I, I just cranking three, four, five yard runs and then gashing them every now and then and all that stuff. So it's been beautiful. So I'm just looking for the same. So I can't wait to see what the run game kind of outline looks like and where we're going and all that kind of stuff. So, okay, service and giving back. All right. So uh, part of our podcast, we're always looking for ways to give back and help others. 
we'll have our MVP vet on. Uh, he's a longtime Niner fan, super excited to be on. Uh, he will be with us. And so he's going to be picking out our charity for our donation. So we're excited about that. We, again, last week sent and each week sent six uh, National Guard veterans to the game, no matter where the game's played. So that's pretty good. So we're about 70, I think 75 veterans right now have gone to the game. So it's been really fun. Uh, so that's really cool. So just, Alex, just kind of as a wrap up, just kind of curious, Yoran, I know you've been really heavy into TAPS. You did the USO tour. So the military piece has been big for you. But what are what are some of the things either growing up or in the NFL that you're kind of committed to or any organizations you want to give a plug to? Uh, I mean, I've done a, a fair amount of different uh, helping out other organizations and, you know, community service stuff throughout the years. Um, something I think really am passionate about is like helping children. Uh, that's something I've been involved with a couple different ways with a couple different charities, just in terms of how do you try to set the world up and make things better in general? Like if you can help a kid that really will pay dividends down the road. And so in Cleveland, uh, I joined a charity just trying, it was cure taste axe disease. And so they tried to like help kids and actually solve a terrible disease um, and so that, that is pretty powerful in Atlanta. I did stand up for kids. Uh, they have a, a program just trying to help inner city youth and stuff about homelessness and getting people to kind of hand up, uh, in the off season every year, I'm part of AFWB American football without barriers. Um, and we go overseas and try to help kids and teach football and get them excited. And we do different activities there. So that one's really fun to do in the off season. And then out here in San Francisco, I'm getting involved with eat, learn and play and just trying to help kids and get them involved, get them, you know, learning, having the right, uh, physical activity, having the right meals, uh, just, just making, making things important that I think are important. That should be important for kids. Uh, you know, it, are you physically active? Are you, you paying attention in school? Are you learning? Are you eating right? Like just having a healthy lifestyle will set kids up for future success. Excellent. Well, then just to any of those, shoot me a note on any of those with some links and we'll add them to the show notes. So if people are interested and want to follow up, encourage them to kind of participate uh, in those kind of pieces. So that would be terrific. So, uh, well, we appreciate all the time and energy that you put in. I know being in the league, um, you don't have to do that, but it's great when NFL players do that because it's unbelievable the difference it makes in kids' lives. So uh, that's a great thing. So, uh, okay, that is all pretty cool. And then we will do all that. Then you want to close us out, Amy? Sure. Um, so the way we kind of like to end is, um, you know, macro, micro, what is uh, one thing that gives you hope um, something that you want to leave our listeners with. Uh, can I give you an example, George? So for me, <laughs> I, do, I do like current events because I, I do one every week. So like what this week is giving me hope. Something that's giving me hope this week is the holidays. I love the holidays. I like spending time with my family. I like sitting around the table. I like talking to my family. I like, because it just, I don't know. It makes me feel like a kid again. This, the holidays, opening Christmas presents, Thanksgiving meals. And so I just appreciate that time. I get to spend with my family because we do, uh, Kyle does a great job. He gives us like almost all of, like we had done on Thursday at like noon or something like that. And so you have the whole day Thursday to do what you want to do on Thanksgiving. Uh, luckily though, my family's coming in for Friday, Thanksgiving. So it'll be great. But uh, the holidays, 
when you get to celebrate, you get to hang out with those that you love and that you care most about you. I just think it's, it's awesome. I like celebrating that. And uh, all the good that comes with the holidays too, like all the giving back, all of the food drives. Uh, like today with the Niners, we headed out for two and a half hours, Thanksgiving meals to people that drove through the parking lot. Like that type of stuff. You know, it's just there's good people that want to help other good people, and I appreciate that. Is that a good enough example, Alex? That's a really good example. Can I just steal it? Yeah, you can, you can go off of it. Go for it, man. I mean, for me, like, I try to have perspective in terms of, like, it was my birthday last week. And so it, it was cool to have people wish me a happy birthday and they ask you how old you are. And I'm like, I'm like 36. And like, that shouldn't be that old, but in football, everyone's like, damn, you know, like, everyone was like really like impressed for how old that was. It's like, Oh yeah. Like I, I, you were, you know, barely alive when I was playing in the league. Uh, so it, it's interesting. <laughs> interesting. Just talking to guys about that and, you know, just being grateful for like the chances I've had and like the teams I've been on and just, I, I just really enjoyed you know, being reminded that like I've been around this a long time, but it goes fast. So you have to like enjoy it and make the most of it because it, it doesn't seem that long ago I was a rookie. It really doesn't. See, that's great. The fact that you say that, because like I feel like we um we talked about a guy that was on my on like our rookie team, my like our rookie training camp, my rookie season. And my I vividly remember sitting in like the rookie room doing like extra rookie activities and all the guys that were in there. And that does not feel like five years ago at all. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. Well, Alex, great point. Cause uh, they always say, right. Happy people are not necessarily gr grateful, but people who are grateful tend to be happy. Just having a sense of gratitude for the blessings you do have, whatever kind of conditions that is. So that's a great thing. And then George, I think today was second harvest, right? Wasn't that who's doing the Thanksgiving? Yeah. Cause I yeah. was on the phone with them today. So just another plug for our listeners. So George will be doing it on site uh, with our retailer in the Santa Clara area, uh, probably late. Yeah, it fixed. Say it again, George. The fixed kicks. Yep, fixed kicks shoe store. So that'll be in the Santa Clara, and so we're working with Second Harvest, and so we'll have a digital drive, food drive going on for the food bank, as well as uh, we'll have an organization they're collecting on site as well. So I'll have a date for that in the next couple of weeks. But again. Um, and if you're somewhere else listening, um, food and shelter is really important as our, our clothing this time of year. So because not everybody has the happiest of holidays. So, again, remind folks, just do what you can where you're at and uh, help who you can as, as you're able. So we really appreciate that. So. All right. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, George. Always great to see you with the Joker behind you. And I look forward to seeing you this week. Really excited about that. And. I'm so pumped for the Vikings game. So, like, my little juice stuff, I'm going to have to do some more calming meditation work because I'm excited for the purple. So, my I grew up – my dad was a huge Vikings fan. He still is. I mean, he now he's a Niner fan, but he's still got his 40 – he's got his old purple Viking hat in the closet. You know, he kind of pulls it out when the Niners aren't playing him. But I'm always for a Viking beatdown. My first NFL game was when I was really little. My dad took me to a Viking game. And it was so cold. All I remember was I was completely frozen. My toes were frostbitten. <laughs> it was in the old outdoor stadium, right? You know, it was so freaking cold. It was like an early it was Thanksgiving weekend, and it was unbelievably bitter. But I, it was so great. I loved it. So, all right. Well, Alex, stay healthy. Let's go. 
get that run game going, we'll pump it up and all that kind of stuff. Any last words, George? Um, let's go Niners, baby. Let's go Niners. Five and five, seven games left in control. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care. Have a great night. Alex, blessings to you. And I uh, hope you have a great week and ongoing season. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys. Appreciate it, Alex. All right. Bye-bye. Bleh. I'm going to do that again. Welcome back in Pearls Podcast, friends, fans, and followers. Today, we are super excited to have Staff Sergeant Dustin Holcomb with us. So a little bio on him before we get into this great interview. Um, Staff Sergeant Dustin Holcomb was born and raised near Sacramento. His grandpa lived in Tracy and was a huge Niners fan. So his very first sports memories are of Niner greats, including Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, Ronnie Lott, Roger Craig, and John Taylor, and all the rest. A fandom highlight for him was attending the Super Bowl versus the Ravens in NOLA. And then getting, and then also getting to be on the sidelines during warmups a couple of times. That is very exciting times. Um, Dustin joined the army at 19 and spent seven years as a forward observer directing artillery, as a forward observer directing artillery, artillery motors, and close air support while reaching the rank of staff sergeant. He deployed to Mosul, Iraq, from October 2004 to September 2005 and took part in over 600 combat missions. On April 10, 2005, he was hit by a suicide car bomb, for which he was later awarded a Purple Heart. Staff Sergeant Holcomb's military awards and recognitions, in addition to a Purple Heart, include three Army Commendation Medals and five Army Achievement Medals. After leaving the military at the end of 2005, he began working in the fitness industry and kept grinding to suppress what he later realized was severe grief and depression. He eventually came to his own came to own his own small business, a fitness center in Redondo Beach. Ooh, I even practiced that before. <laughs> Redondo Beach area where he employed fellow veterans. He is now employed with 24-hour fitness. LOL, because your girl was too. Um, in the spring of 2017, one of his army brothers took his own, or in the spring of 2017, one of his army brothers took his own life, and that event led him to MVP and on the path to reaching out and helping other veterans. He provides veteran assistance whenever possible in mentorship, health, and fitness, and in brother and sisterhood. So, Dustin, welcome to the Hidden Pearls podcast. Really great to have you with us and taking time to share your story with us and your involvement with MVP. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am very excited to be here. Yay. You okay. said that George was his favorite player. And George, so yeah, George we, is my favorite player. And we there's, already... there's one game that I'm going to refer to, and that was the moment that he became my favorite player. Ooh, Ooh. can't wait to get into that. Well, we already have so much in common. 24-hour fitness and George. <laughs> All right. Well, let's clear up the 24-hour fitness connection. What's going on with that? So I know, Dustin, that's your GM at one of the stores there in California. So, Luba, what's what's going on? Why are you uh, an affiliate? All right. So um, it was like junior year of college. Young Emma was on a quest to find herself and got invited to go live in Orange County for the summer. Um, I swore to my parents I wasn't going to drop out of school and or try to transfer and <laughs> disappear. Um, so while I was there, um, I got a job at a 24 hour fitness. Uh, one of my friend's dads hooked it up and I was the super positive, like, what's up? I love life uh, type front desk girl. And I cannot remember what we always need those. 
I know. Oh, it was great. Especially I was five o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. Like people do not want to be at the gym. So it's like, we need that spark plug to like, okay, everybody get the juices flowing. Let's get the workout on. And, and this was at the point in my fitness career. So I was not playing volleyball anymore, but I was like in the training regimen where I would just take a scoop of pre-workout and like dump it into my mouth. And like, that's how I went to work and people would come in and I'd be like, you're living your best life. Like oh God, so many people like hated me, but at the same time, it was so great. So then I went on to become a personal trainer and begged my parents to let me drop out of school and stay in California. Cause I was like, peace and love, baby. Or you wouldn't ask to. I know I did. I did, but it was so good. I fell in love with the beach. So you not. I know. So maybe someday we'll make it out to your gym. That'd be really fun. That would be awesome. You work front desk for an hour just to, you know, show my, my employees what uh, being cracked out on uh, pre-workout <laughs> looks like at the front desk. As long as you do it with a smile, man. As long as you do it with a smile. All that matters. <laughs> well, we, we got the Rams in January, so we'll be down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe we'll make a visit. Okay. But we survived the 20. Okay. All good. All right. <laughs> and then... Uh, I mean, we have a book. We'll get into that. So, but let's just jump in because you got the jerseys right behind you. So let's tell the story about when George became your favorite player, just because those are fun stories. So why don't you tell us a little about your Niner fandom history and uh, how you got into the 85 jersey? Okay. Well, uh, you know, just, just going back, like Joe Montana was my favorite player um, up until uh, he got traded to the Chiefs. So that was, uh, that was, that was pretty heartbreaking for me as a teenager. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, he retired and, and Steve Young carried on the tradition. Of course, Jerry Rice was still with the Niners. Um, got that, I think it was what, 94, 95 Super Bowl against the, the Chargers that, you know, they just absolutely stomped them into the, into the turf, which was awesome. Uh, and then, and then there were the lean years with, you know, Jeff Garcia and Jim Druckenmiller and all that, which was brutal. Um, and then uh, uh, my next favorite memory uh, was I actually went to got to go to the Green Bay Packers game where Kaepernick was his first year as a starter. And it was at the stick and Kaepernick ran for like 181 yards, two touchdowns and just, you know, owned them in the playoffs. Um, and that was the year uh, I also got to go to the Super Bowl in New Orleans, which, you know, the end result was not as much fun. But I mean, the Super Bowl experience is like one. It was so funny because my, my friend who I went with, my roommate, he was just like the Super Bowl. The game itself is like part of it. It, it seems like it's the main event when you're going. But like everything else going around, it's just, it's just part of the show. And which was, which was true. And then, yeah, I was disappointing to, that they lost the game, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was one of my favorite trips ever. Yeah. Um, and then uh, coming to, you know, the modern 49ers, um, it was the, the game against the New Orleans Saints where George caught that pass at the end of the fourth quarter and single-handedly carried the entire 49ers franchise into field goal territory. And I was like, his exuberance and just the way he plays the game and how hard and, and, and he doesn't care about, you know, like it's so obvious that he's not like, throw me the ball, throw me the ball. He's like, I'll go out and just hit somebody and lay him out. Like he's just as happy doing that as anything else, whether he has the ball or not, he just goes out and has a blast. And that is really inspiring to me. And, and that was literally the play where he became my favorite player. Okay. Well, it's certainly one of uh, his top 10 plays for me as well. So that's, that was a dandy. Yeah. I think fourth and two, 
he ran a little, uh, it was a choice route, little cut in, the guy jumped it, and then he rolled it outside. And great pass by Jimmy, and the next thing you know, we're kicking a field goal. And, and you know what? We were, we were at that game, and uh, it's brutal. You know, the Dome is like, it's loud, and those Saints fans are vicious in a very competitive kind of way. And so we're sitting right in the middle of a bunch of them, and it's just going crazy, blah, blah, blah. And then after he converted on that fourth down, you know, it's just like a freaking pen drop, right? You know, it's like, you know, either that, that or that. Like, like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> right, they're MFing everybody, kicked the field goal, and then you're like, and then, of course, we're like, you know, that try not to be completely uh, arrogant. But anyway, it was. Wait a minute, that wasn't a playoff game, was it? Or, no. No. No, it wasn't a playoff game. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking uh, of the Vernon Davis touchdown against the Saints in the playoffs that I was, I was confusing the the playoff versus regular season, but it was still, that was just such an awesome play. Right. Although it was kind of, it was a playoff type because uh, that one, and then the way the rest of the season unfolded, that one made the difference in having home field advantage. So, it, I mean, that was Absolutely. a big, that's a big deal. So, okay. Well, all right. We got a little Georgia and a little football. So all good. So we look, we're into the Niner world. Okay. So let's see, you grew up in Sacramento uh, and I'm not a Cali, so I hear that referred to. Is that part of the Bay Area? Is that, or is that too much of a stretch? Because you guys are a little, it's it's a little inland. It's more in the Sierra foothills uh, yeah. where I grew up. Um, and then I was homeschooled all the way through high school. Get out. Yep. Yeah, we, we were homeschooled uh, for a little while. Yeah, we we're little, a little home on the prairie type vibe. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, Emma went later. Yeah, until like uh, seventh grade or so, or sixth, seventh grade. I think we didn't do the whole thing. So, ooh, that's a whole another interesting story. So, okay, well, what, what's one of your favorite things about Sacramento and or the Bay Area? Um, the Bay Area is, every time I've been down there, you know, uh, going to the the tower, the sightseeing in San Francisco is just awesome. Uh, the bridge, the, uh, 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 what is the name of that, uh, that fort down there, Fort Point or mm-hmm. something? You mean the uh, one right under the bridge? Right, yeah. So cool. So I was there. Uh, so I went to the game. Um, I think it was December 15th of 2019 against the Falcons. And so I went and did some sightseeing and, and all that stuff. So I had a really good time doing that. Um, so San Francisco is just a beautiful city. It's insanely expensive, but it's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> and then my, you know, one of my favorite things about Sacramento is the, uh, the old train museum in uh old sack mm. it's really mm. cool so but uh cool. and then, but i grew up in the foothills in a little town called brownsville about uh 3500 4000 people okay it always yeah. surprises me when people say like i grew up in this tiny community in california i'm like i didn't know those existed it, it, it's you know and it's above bakersfield <laughs> okay. that's where the little towns are <laughs> i'm always like what do you mean little <laughs> but whatever um okay well family wise what's maybe the hardest slash best lesson that your family taught you while you were growing up oh boy that is uh you know that i finally had to choose to live my life for my expectations and my happiness and my joy and my motivations and what i wanted to do with my life because it was my life 
and it wasn't my parents' life. It wasn't the people around me. Um, things along those lines. And then that, frankly, I, I made a point to be stationed on the other side of the country for the first two years I was in the military. I, I went to Fort Benning um, and requested that specifically just to like get away and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Having been homeschooled, having been raised very conservative and, and all those things, I was just like, okay, I need out and to figure out who I am. And so that was, you know, it may not have been uh, in a, more of an indirect lesson that they taught me, but it, it helped me uh, over time find who I wanted to be versus, you know, allowing people to dictate who they thought I should be and trying to live to those standards. When right. do you think that you started learning that lesson though, right? Because Bruce has been trying to instill that and like shove that down my throat ever since I was a baby. And I feel like it hasn't it's taken me, I, I like learn it in waves, but I feel like it really didn't come until like my late twenties that I actually fully embodied that. And like, really like, I'm going to swear, but like the level of fucks just like started going down, you know, and people said that would happen when I turned 30, but I just, when did that happen for you? Um, honestly, I, when I was 40. Okay. I'm on track then. Um, it took me a really long time. Again, be, coming from being homeschooled and being in a very conservative environment, like I didn't have that that school system. I didn't have all those friends and stuff like that. It was just my brother and me, my younger brother and me. And then I joined the army and that's a whole different level of somebody being in control of your life mm-hmm. uh, in a completely different environment, like living in the barrier. I went from, you know, having a room that I shared with my brother or, you know, once he moved out and I, you know, I moved in with my dad and stuff. And then, you know, going from that environment and then to living in the barracks with 200 other dudes and again, being told when to get up, when to go to sleep, when to eat, you know, all that stuff, like all the time. And so it was, uh, it was just very different uh, environments. And so it, it was almost like, you know, growing up was one lifetime and then the military was one lifetime. And then the 16 years since then has been like, okay, now I'm learning what life is actually about. And so, so yeah, it was about uh, a year and a half ago, year, year and a half ago, where I really started learning um, who I wanted to be and, and what expectations I had of myself and being confident and comfortable in my own skin. Well, congratulations. Well, that's pretty I Because, you know, when you're explaining that after the homeschooling piece, because that is hard to, it's just different to come out from underneath that because you don't have all the exposure to like other kids at school and all those kind of different ideas and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And then the military is really not a free reign. I mean, you're, you're kind of told what to think and what to do. And so it's like after you have kind of two extremes like that about, you know, the dominant kind of control, uh, getting out, that would be a lot of freedom to kind of cope with. Yeah. Um, as you made that transition. So there was a lot going on with that. Well, that's, that's an exciting process. Well, there's a lot there. So, well, congratulations on that. Um, that's pretty cool. So we'll happy for you there. And now you're doing, you're chasing the fitness piece and doing all those kind of things. So, well, let's, let's talk a little bit then just about getting into the army. So you went to, was it Bakersfield? No. Would you say what, to, what town? Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, okay. No, I meant for high school. Oh, for high, I was homeschooled. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. All so, the way through, I got my GED at 17. Did you, gotcha. play, okay. did you play sports at all? I was not allowed to. 
Um, coaches would literally come to my house, like the football and basketball coaches at different times when I was uh, like 15, 16 years old, came to my house and asked my mom if I could come play. Cause they'd see me playing on the playground with the other kids, you know, after school and stuff. And they'd be like, okay, this kid is six one and athletic. Like we need to get him on our team or at least get him a tryout. And my mom was like, nope, not doing it. Um, and no that, sport that was- at all. No organized sports at all, um, which was a big reason I think that I w- went into the army. I was like, okay, you won't let me join these sports teams. I'll go join a really big team and go get, <laughs> go do the play the ultimate game of life and death. <laughs> so, it, was uh, it a was it like your mom just was like keeping you safe, or was it like a religious reason, or what was uh, the- more religion? Um, she does not believe in competition. Um, ah. thinks that that is, you know, the whole winners and losers. Like we'd even play games that are, you know, um, religious versions of monopoly and she wouldn't let us play against each other. We had to play as a team trying to beat our own previous scores and like trying to run up. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. If my mom could, did know that game, that's how she would have made us play too, but uh, she didn't, um, interesting what uh, like what religion denomination are you uh i am not at all anymore but my mom is seventh day adventist okay all right so i sure uh, heard of a little bit about them being in southern california i have i have um well so super rebellious clearly um what do you do so then enlisting in the army how how'd that feel um, it was awesome. And it, it was pretty funny because, uh, when I called my mom and told her that I'd enlisted and she just takes a big deep <laughs> breath and goes, well, that's not the choice I would have made for you. <laughs> and, uh, but, I mean, she's, you know, very, very supportive. Um, uh, I mean, I swear she lost probably 10 pounds while I was in Iraq and she's not even that small or she's not even that big. She's like five, two and 110 pounds. And she like couldn't eat consistently for that year that I was over there. So, but yeah, super supportive, you know, had prayer groups going for me, all that fun stuff. Okay. So take me through enlistment day. Like what's the vibe or is this like a, I'm going to burn this shit down type vibe or is we're like, were you scared? Like what was the, I was, I was excited. Uh, I, you know, are you talking about the first day in, in basic training or you're the day that I actually signed up for the army? I I was thinking the day you actually signed up, but they actually signed up. So, uh, it was, it was, uh, late January of 99. Um, I, I went into the, uh, the MEPS there in Sacramento and, uh, cause I'd, I'd gone through my recruiter in Yuba city. And, uh, and then, so once again, I, I checked out a couple of the different branches and the army was just closer to what I wanted to do. My family, my, uh, my both grandpas and uncle and a cousin were all Navy, um, but I did not want to be stuck on a boat for six months at a time with a bunch of dudes. Uh, just does not sound like fun to me. So uh, I was like, I'm going to stay on the land. And yeah. Um, <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, went down to MEPS. I uh, took my ASVAB, scored very well on that. Um, and my recruiter just said, okay, well, you did really well on that test. So what do you want to do? And I said, I want to blow shit up. And he goes, I have the job for you. And he's like, you're going to be a fire support specialist. And I was like, I don't want to put out fires. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what it means. It means you're calling in all the big guns. And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Let's do that. (laughs) Had you ever, I mean, just in following up on the mom question, had you ever been around guns or weapons at all? 
Um, somewhat like my dad had guns and I, I'd lived with him for about the last year before I joined the army. Um, and it, you know, like pellet guns and stuff as it, you know, once I was a teenager and my mom wasn't around, <laughs> like I'd go visit my grandpa and he'd let me shoot his pellet gun at like 16. But other than that, not, uh, not too much. Mm. Last follow-up question. What's the biggest gun you've ever fired off or called in then or weapon in general? Oh boy, that is uh, that's a big list. Um, one of the most fun weapons that oh boy, oof, that's so many, <laughs> uh, so many answers to that question. Um, so I I, uh, I fired a Barrett fifty cal sniper rifle offhand, so standing and like this, and it's like a thirty pound rifle um, with that fires around that's half an inch around and armor piercing. Yeah, it's it's a big gun. And so I fired that offhand and that was really fun. Um, the other really fun one was a uh, uh, tripod mounted uh, M40 grenade launcher, which fires 40 millimeter grenades, uh, belt fed, fully automatic, and they'll go a football field plus um, with a, yeah, yeah, big booms at the end of that. That was really fun. So those are the, the weapons that I personally like fired that were really fun. Um, and then as far as, uh, calling in, I mean, calling in 155 millimeter artillery shell is, uh, is really fun, especially when you get a fire for effect. So all six guns shoot three rounds each. And so basically you like turn the entire side of the hill into just shrapnel and boom. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time talking to the Kiowa warriors and Apache attack helicopters in, uh, in Mosul while we were in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, during the combat operations there, um, also in uh, in training, got to uh, got to play with a uh, AC-130 Spectre, which is uh, most people you know it's the big uh, four propeller um, cargo planes called the Hercules C-130 Hercules. Well, what they did was they were like, hey, what if we like put these big sliding doors on one side? And put all this targeting equipment inside and put a 105 millimeter cannon pointed out of the one door, the 40 millimeter belt fed grenade launcher out of another door, and then a 7.62 millimeter uh, minigun out of the other round. And then we just have it circle at 8,000 feet over the target, just shooting straight down. That was really fun. That was was like you just spoke Spanish or like Japanese to me. I have (laughs) no concept of what you just said, but that sounds... Great. Really big guns, lots of booms, big booms, and they don't miss. I mean, it's literally like seeing sparks as the rounds are hitting the target because they're that accurate. From wow. the, like, I mean, literally uh, just a big cargo plane circling to 8,000 feet shooting straight down. Well, hot damn. Thank you yeah. for that education. Okay. And well, I'm so- really glad that you said fuck earlier because it's like every fourth <laughs> word in my vocabulary. So okay. ever since I was in the army, that's just... I, I don't know how it's like a punctuation an exclamation. Like it, it's a very useful word. Pops, you're going to have to say it now. You can't be the only loser who doesn't do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure it'll come up. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's uh, take a trip to basic training then. So how did basic training change you and what were some of the lessons that you learned there? So, you know, just going back to having never been part of a team, never been in a school environment, um, you know, 19 years old, they wake me up at 4:30 in the morning and they line us up at the clinic. And the first thing you do is you are lined up and you walk through a door and you get, uh, you know, those, uh, pneumatic, um, shots things, you know, they give you the shot. 
Uh, so it was two in one shoulder and one in the other at the same time at like five o'clock in the morning, you like walk through the door, like, Oh, and then, uh, you walk around the corner and you face a wall, you pull your pants down, they stick you with uh, penicillin. And that is uh, literally your first hour of basic training. Um, then they shave your head and then take you to your uniforms. Oh, and you have to pay for that haircut. Um, <laughs> then you get your uniforms and then you start going through kind of the, the end processing of that. But the biggest thing for me is, uh, again, having never been in a team environment, having never had people depending on me, really um, having had, you know, I'd never had school projects where, you know, I was responsible with someone else, that type of thing. So I was very much an individual um, when I, and, and frankly, you know, I was very, very isolated because uh, again, I just, you know, hadn't really been exposed to that much of the world. And it was uh, it was a massive learning experience. I learned, I, I grew so much. I feel like I went from being like a 12 year old to like a 20 year old in nine weeks uh, from a, a mental maturity standpoint. And then, uh, so I did, like I started out basic training, I was pretty bad at it. And then, uh, as I got better, you know, as I, as we got through basic training, I lost weight, I got in shape, you know, all that stuff. And then, uh, and then when I went to my advanced individual training, which is actually learning my school, which is calling in the indirect fire. Um, I was the distinguished honor graduate or top of my class. So oh, wow. I, I figured it out pretty quickly at that point of how, how all that stuff works. That's good. So it ends up being a pretty good fit. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a really good fit. Okay. Well, then, um, do you want to uh, kind of jump up then and um, get into being deployed and kind of tell us a little bit about that whole situation and how that went down? Sure. Um, we uh, we we were tasked with my unit. It was uh, First Battalion, Twenty Fourth Infantry, stationed out of uh, based out of Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, we deployed, uh, it was, I think we flew out on like October 14th of 2004, uh, spent a couple days in, uh, in Kuwait, uh, kind of prepping everything and then, uh, flew in cargo planes up to Mosul and it was supposed like where we were going, it was supposed to be really, really quiet. Like there, you know, there wasn't really anything going on. There weren't really any insurgents. Like more of them were down in Fallujah and, you know, and that's where all the, the bad stuff was happening. But, you know, I told my mom, I was like, mom, there's nothing going on up there. I'll be perfectly fine. They're not even fighting. They're not, there's no firefights. Nothing's going on in Mosul. And uh, around the time we got there was when the Marines did a huge offensive into Fallujah. And the insurgents that survived that assault came straight to Mosul because it's a, it was a city of two and a half million people. So it was really easy for them to hide, but also it was only about 30 miles from the Syrian border. So if we got too close to them, they could just jump the border. And that was their, their strategy. So we went from being thinking that, you know, nothing was really going to happen. We were just going to have kind of a be patrolling this big city and, you know, like keeping the peace type thing. And it turned into uh, like we landed in, we got into Iraq. Let's see, I had my 25th birthday um, was, you know, right after was like the day after we got to Iraq. Uh, and then it was about a week after that is when things started really, you know, shit really started hitting the fan in Mosul. And we went down there. Uh, my first firefight was on November 11th of 2004, Veterans Day. Um, 
And that was the day that I found out that bullets really do zing when they go over your head. It's a really creepy sound when it smacks the wall behind you. Um, and, you know, broad daylight, it looked like Star Wars because we're shooting our tracers and they're shooting tracers back, which are the white phosphorus tipped rounds. And I mean, it, it literally looked like Star Wars in broad daylight, like these, and, uh, and all that. But uh, that was also the day we lost our first guy, uh, Tommy Dorflinger. Um, he took one direct hit through the helmet. Um, and, uh, but they, they, I mean, we were in about a five hour firefight that day and, uh, and it was, it was a lot of action for the next six months, uh, because they really wanted to get a foothold in Mosul and, and establish that as their new base of operations. And we said, fuck, you no." And so, you know, we were out kicking doors. We were flying, uh, Blackhawk, uh, we were flying on Blackhawks at, you know, two 30 in the morning and, and taking over compounds before they even knew we were there. Um, searching door to door, finding just all kinds of, uh, of weapons, um, remote devices. Uh, and the thing was, is like, you know, after, after about a month or two in, it was like, you know, as many IEDs as we came across as many ambushes, we came across, it was like, every time you saw a broken, broken piece of curb, uh, every time you saw a pothole that was slightly filled in, anytime a car rolled past a little slower than the others, it, it was just like, okay, is this it? And, uh, and so that's what, uh, that was like, um, December 21st of 04. So, uh, about a month and a half after Tommy died, um, a suicide bomber was able to get into our chow hall on our base and uh, blew himself up during the middle of lunch, uh, wounded over 70 people, um, 12 killed, including uh, my company commander, who was also my workout partner at the time. Um, that, was, uh, that was a rough one. Um, February 19th of 2005, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my really good friends, um, Clint Gertzen, um, just a, a car pulled up and fired just a three round burst out of the window and drove off. Um, one of the rounds caught him just inside the plate, uh, uh, you know, just right in uh, right. I mean, just missed the plate of his body armor, uh, went through both lungs and went out the back of his other shoulder. Um, and it was actually his, uh, Barrett 50 cal that I'd fired, uh, you know, out at the range that one day. Um, that one, uh, that one got me the worst. Um, I, you know, after his memorial service, I went back to my room, my little hooch, and I took the first five bullets out of my magazine. And I engraved his initials on him or on them. Um, and then, uh, wasn't too long later that, uh, I used those and, uh, and then I got blown up five days after that. So, but, uh, and then, uh, once that happened and, and then, so after I got blown up on April 10th of 2005, which was, uh, I was very fortunate. It was flash burns. It was a propane accelerant. Basically this car just pulled off to the side of the road in front of us. Like every other car did when armored vehicles came rolling up behind it. And just when we got beside it, he pushed the button. I was up in the air guard hatch, uh, pulling rear security. So I didn't even see the car because it was coming, you know, cause I was facing kind of back at an angle and all of a sudden, next thing I knew, I was inside of a fireball. There was a flash of orange. Um, it kind of turned gray. 
And then it, it, the only way I can describe it is imagine being thrown into an oven. Um, that's what it felt like. I, I have never been that hot over, you know, like my entire upper body was just, was literally engulfed in flames. Um, they saw the fireball. Um, another, another platoon saw the fireball from almost two miles away. And I was about 25 feet from the, the actual car. And, uh, I fell, you know, the concussion hit me. Fortunately, I was wearing a, a radio set in my uh, helmet called a Peltor. So I could talk to the helicopters. Um, and, uh, so that saved my hearing and kept me from getting a concussion. Um, but I fell, I remember falling into the vehicle and I was patting myself because I was trying to pat the flames out. Cause I thought I was burning. I, 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 I fell down into the vehicle. Like I'm dying. Like this is it. I mean, it was literally a kaleidoscope of memories and family and loved ones and all of that, like instantly just like flashing my mind. I was like, this is it. And then I was patting myself and then I, I kind of like got enough awareness to realize that my, my gloves weren't on fire. And I, uh, I sat up on the bench and there was only two guys down inside, maybe three. And I, I get up and I, I sit up and I look and they're like looking just this absolute look of horror on their face. Cause they didn't even know what had happened. They, you know, they didn't know what was going on. They were down inside and, um, and I, I remember looking at them and looking at all their faces, and just the terrified looks on their faces. And I'm just screaming, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? And they're like, I, I think so. Like your, your face is a little wet, but I think so. So I, I, I got back up in the hatch cause we need, you know, obviously you don't want to sit there where a bomb just went off. Um, so I get back up in the hatch and I was up there for maybe about five minutes before the shock wore off. And it was like, my face was raw. Like it basically melted all the skin from here to here. Uh, fortunately this is a secondary burn. So I didn't get, you know, I can tell where it is, um, in certain places. Like I, you know, I can see the scars on the inside, you know, on the edge of my nose and stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah. So that's when I was like, Hey guys, I need somebody else to take over this. This hurts. <laughs> like my whole face was stained cause it was raw and uh, got back to the aid station and going down there. And then like, I remember doc Montoya who actually lives down here in California. He, uh, he was cleaning me up and he's like, all right, well, I'm going to go get your purple heart paperwork started. And I was like, purple heart for what? And he's like, uh, dude, you're hurt. And you got blown up. Like you get a purple heart for this. And I was like, Oh, okay. And it was, you know, cause I hadn't even looked in a mirror yet at that point. Um, and then, you know, and then seeing over the next few days of, you know, just the, the, the amount of damage, I was like, Oh, okay. Now I understand. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so I went out on a, uh, on a mission the next day where we just went to the range and I, I went to take my helmet off and the front of my helmet caught my nose right here and my nose like the skin of my nose peeled off in one piece, like, like a shell of my nose. Um, so I go back to my, my uh, NCO meeting that night and my first Sergeant, Mike Bordelon, he goes, why does your face look worse today than it did yesterday? And I was like, Oh, we were out on the mission. I took my helmet off and it caught my nose. And he goes, what were you doing outside the wire? I was like, well, we had a mission. He goes, as long as your face looks like that, you don't go off base. Um, and then, so I got hit April 10th on April 23rd, his vehicle got hit. Um, they got hit by a vehicle that actually rammed them um, using shape charges. It created about a four foot 
four to six foot crack about uh, four to six inches wide uh, down one of the side of the vehicle, down the side of the vehicle in the wheel well, um, which in a shape charge, basically what they do is they pour concrete into a bucket and then put a bowl in it to keep it hollowed out. And then that's where they pack all the explosives. So the, uh, so the explosive is all forced in one direction and that's how they break armor with, you know, armor. That's how they uh, destroy armored vehicles with, uh, with IEDs. Because uh, normally there's just not enough force there. They would have, you know, just, and um, in that vehicle uh, was uh, my next, my second company commander, uh, my first sergeant, the interpreter, one of the snipers, uh, my lieutenant, um, the, uh, the driver, and then the gunner. Um, nobody was on that vehicle, came back to theater. Um, my Lieutenant ended up with, uh, burns, I believe on, uh, 30% of his body. Um, I remember going to the, the aid station and actually carrying him to the helicopter to, so he could be uh, medevac to Germany, to the burn center. Um, uh, Ace Davis, um, he died, uh, about seven hours later. He was the sniper. He was up in the other hatch. Normally when you are, faced with something that extreme heat and things like that, your trach seizes up so that you don't breathe in all that smoke and that heat and all that stuff. His didn't work. He melted his lungs from the inside and he basically suffocated after about seven hours. Um, the interpreter died. Um, company commander broke his leg. Uh, the driver and the gunner both had smoke uh, inhalation. Um, and then uh, Mike Bordelon, my, my first sergeant, um, he was sitting on the side of the vehicle that got hit. And so it, it was, it basically shot flames into the vehicle, um, and, and cooked off ammo that was inside the vehicle. It was so hot. Um, it melted through his body armor. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was, it is to this day. I don't know how he didn't die that day, but he actually survived almost three weeks. Um, before, you know, he, he made it to the point where they were trying to transport him to a, a burn center where he just, he couldn't hold on anymore. Um, but just, just the fact that, you know, he wouldn't let me go outside of the wire. Like he was, you know, just because I had a, a you know, a burn on my face and, uh, but that was, you know, that was the last day that I stayed on base. Um, you know, because we were at that point, we were really undermanned, like my Lieutenant, um, and I was the, the NCO for the fire team, fire support team. Um, so I was, you know, I was out on missions again, you know, later that day, um, and back full. Cause we did a, we had a 10 day work week over there. So it was nine days of two a day of missions at least. And then, you know, and then, uh, one day to basically refit and, and repair all your equipment. Uh, you know, change your batteries, clean your, you know, weapon, all that stuff. And then you're, you know, back out on patrol for the next nine days. Um, we were on a, uh, a, <clears throat> a FOB forward, forward operations base. We were at FOB Merez, um, in, in Mosul and, uh, yeah. And then, uh, things started calming down, um, around July, which is also when it got really, really hot. It was uh, an average of 125 degrees for three weeks straight, ranging from like 122 to 128. And I was out there in 60 pounds of gear. Uh, <laughs> so that was, uh, 
that was a, a different experience. Um, and, uh, but yeah, things started calming down a little bit then. Um, I mean, there was still minor skirmishes, but it wasn't like every single day. Like, and, and we, we were winning the hearts and minds. Like we were the, the regular population that the majority of the city was supporting us and actually starting giving us Intel on, on where the insurgents were and, and what was going on. So, uh, we, we, you know, had a, uh, okay partnership with the Iraqi National Guard and Iraqi police. Um, but, you know, it's just, you know, the same thing that happened in Afghanistan. They weren't prepared to take over when we pulled out and left that vacuum. They just, they weren't prepared. They weren't trained. And, and frankly, they, you know, they weren't bought in. Um, and, and I mean, like I said, it's way worse than what's, what's happening in Afghanistan right now, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and, and the way that we, we left those people was not cool. Um, I, I, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know yeah. how to, how to describe it. I don't have the words for how I feel about that situation. Okay. Well, let's, we'll just catch our breath for a sec. So, well, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. And that's pretty real stuff. And so I, I guess on behalf of all of us, you know, I guess condolences, you know, for those losses, because. I mean, I can hear in the storytelling, you know, those are friends and colleagues, comrades and that. And so um, I, I really appreciate you sharing the story in which the way in which you did. And um, that kind I, of I, I really hope that and this is this is what I've been striving for with merging bets and players and the other other organizations is is I tell the hard shit because I hope it inspires other veterans to do the same because I know that my talking and being able to talk about it is what saved me. Right. Well, I'm glad you felt comfortable to do that. So that's probably a little bit more detail than most of our vets have shared. You know, they've kind of, um, and again, that's, I mean, just wherever anybody's at. So, but I, I appreciate you doing that because it does, I think, paint a picture that a lot of people don't get. You can watch a movie or do all that kind of stuff, but to hear somebody who has been in the midst of it and been through that, it's a, it's kind of a whole different piece of form. So, I appreciate that. So, well, let's, because um, we don't want to keep you all day and or anything like that. But so, uh, again, I appreciate you really sharing that. So then talk to us a little bit then, you know, because later that year, then you eventually transition back to the United States. And let's maybe just shift gears into that and talk to us a little bit about, you know, that journey for you coming back and then, you know, trying to hit the streets and, you know, you know, incorporate what you've been through and integrate that into your current life and try to figure things out from there. So take us through that. And I guess, you know, up to, cause I know there's a big gap in, you know, from, you get back, I think in 2005 and then you get into MVP around 2017. So, I mean, you don't have to do, you know, just kind of generally like what, yeah. what, uh, you know, what obstacles or struggles did you face when you first came back and then we'll kind of get into the MVP story. Well, um, the, I came back uh, end of September of 2005. Um, and, and not only that, I'd been actually been stop loss. So I spent seven years in, I enlisted for three, re-enlisted for three more. And the army involuntarily extended me past my contract for 299 days. I'm sure you guys have heard of the term stop loss. Um, so I got that done. So I was, I was pretty, by the time that happened and I got those orders before we even deployed, I was like, I am getting the fuck out when we get back. Uh, and so, you know, I went through the out processing. I had literally one psych eval 
Um, it was about 30 minutes with like a counselor and like a, a an assistant counselor or something. And she was just like, oh yeah, I'm here to just observe. And the guy's like, and one of the first questions he asked me is like, so do you have super, do you feel like you have superpowers? And I was like, what? What the fuck kind of question is that? And and I'm like, this is the psychological help. These are the psychological questions you're going to ask. I don't need this shit. Um, and so, and, and the other thing is, is, I mean, I'd only been back for like a month from combat, from being shot at, from my friends dying. Like, that's not enough time to process that and, and figure out what you need or how you even feel about it. I didn't know what my emotions were. I was, I was trying to, I was lying to myself. I was convincing myself that I was strong enough. I wasn't affected. I was fine because I had to be, um, for me like that, that, that was, that was just my mindset is no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. And, you know, I just put, poured myself into work. I was working seven days a week as a personal trainer, became a fitness manager with 24 hour fitness. Then a year later, a general manager and just, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. Uh, went through a very quick marriage and divorce in under two years uh, because I just I, I was had all this stuff that I was not processing that I needed to this grief, this sorrow, this this um, rage um, over, you know, and just, you know, I, I don't know, there's just so many different ways to describe it, but it was just, you know, it's just a mixture of emotions. It's like, whirlwind of, of just emotions and energy that I didn't know what to do with. So I just put it in a box and ignored it for, uh, quite a while. And, uh, it was about 2015, 2015 living, uh, 15, 2016 living down here in LA. Um, I had left 24 hour fitness, um, was, was working for a commercial equipment finance company, it, you know, it just wasn't something I was passionate about. So I wasn't enjoying it. It wasn't going great. I was having relationship issues, um, f- some financial issues. And I just, I, I got so much anxiety um, that I couldn't sleep. And I just started spiraling. I, I literally like, like basically catnap for like two to three hours of sleep a night. Um, because every time I'd wake up, it would just be like, uh, all, all this, all these things would just be spinning, just spinning. And, uh, and it finally got to a point where like the last, you know, two weeks or so of that, that spin cycle, I literally fell asleep every night thinking about how I was going to kill myself. Um, and what I, you know, what really pulled me out of that was, um, I, I have a really, really strong supportive circle of friends around me, including other veterans, but especially, you know, around here. And, and again, I think the reason that I haven't been isolated or haven't felt isolated the way that a lot of veterans do is because again, having been a personal trainer and having to talk to people all day, every day and connect with people, like I'm just real. And so my friends like have all heard all of this shit and then some, and, and so, and they're very supportive and they know when I, lose my shit that it's not necessarily them and I'm not going off on them, but you know, it it just, um, I've been reading a book called the body keeps the score, my therapist at the VA. Um, and, and basically what it, it, it helped me understand is that because of the, the chemicals that your body releases under high stress environments, um, when you're at that level for so long of, you know, being, 
you know, having mortars falling on your base, being in combat patrols, you know, all this stuff for a year, like your body still, anytime you're stressed, it's like, okay, we're at it. Let's go. And so you go from a one to a 10 in your emotions, like before you even know what happened, like you don't even know you're pissed and suddenly you're like punching holes in holes. Like, it'd be like, wait, why am I, what, what's happening right now? Why is my hand bloody? You know, I mean, I've literally been there. And, um, and so, uh, so, you know, going through that stuff, but uh, um, anyway, in 2017, it was, uh, I think it was late March of 2017, Nick Becker um, put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. And he was a guy that I had uh, been in Iraq with. And I, I posted, um, you know, like I said, I had, I'd come out of that because of the circle of friends around me, um, and out of my depression or, you know, that, that extent of my depression. Um, and then, uh, Nick killed himself and, uh, and, you know, and I saw, you know, what? I'm fine. I got out of it last time. I don't need help. I'm good. I was just in a bad spot, whatever. And then when he killed himself, I, it hit me really hard. And I was like, I was this close to doing that. I need to talk to somebody. And it was crazy because one of my, uh, one of my former bosses hit me up and he's like, Hey, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but there's this veterans group that meets at the gym that I work at, uh, unbreakable performance. And, uh, and it's called merging vets and players and, and you should come check it out sometime. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. You know, I put it off for like a couple of weeks. Cause I'm just like, that's the last thing I need to just go sit with a bunch of veterans and hear all the sob stories and all this shit. And, uh, exactly. That was the last thing I needed. And, uh, but I finally, I went and like sitting in that circle in that fireside chat and doing the, the workout first, um, it just, it felt like home, you know, it, it felt that, you know, because you can tell people like civilians, like what happened, but, but really being able to describe the emotions and thoughts that you're are going through your mind while you're in that situation, like, only somebody that has been through that is going to be able to truly relate and understand and can look you in the eye and go, yeah, I get it. And to sit in a room with 40 other people and have them all be able to look me in the eye and say, yeah, I get it. You know, and not even have to say it, but just to understand it. Uh, I remember I was sitting in the corner and, you know, and I introduced myself because uh, I was new as my first session. I was like, yeah, I'm Dustin Holcomb. I was a staff sergeant in the army, put in Mosul, Iraq. And then I started talking about Nick and why I'd come that day. And I just broke down sobbing. And, and I remember uh, junior junior, uh, he came over to me and he just sat there and he just put his arm around me and I just sobbed on his shoulder. And, um, and that was literally a life changing moment for me to, to, have that support and have those people having my back. I mean, I'm so grateful to Jay and to Nate for, for starting this organization because I, it, I guarantee it saves lives. I know it saves lives and I know how much it's helped me. Um, and, uh, and so that's, uh, that's where I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm not as involved with MVP because I work down in Torrance. The gym is up in West Hollywood. So it's literally like over an hour each way for me. Um, plus I work until basically when MVP starts. So by the time I get up there, it'd be wrapping up. But I do I do get up there probably once a month, once every other month. COVID did throw things off uh, a lot. 
Um, but, uh, but I am trying to get a little more involved, but they connected me with a, a buddy of mine, Manny, and, uh, we're, we're workout buddies when our schedules allow, um, he'd, uh, he just needed to get in the gym. He'd, uh, had COVID last year and ended up in the hospital because he'd had childhood asthma and it really affected him. And he ended up in the hospital for like three weeks, put on some weight. They reached out to me like, Hey, Dustin, we have this MVP member that needs to work out. He lives down by you. You think you can meet with him, give him some tips. And he has literally been like my brother, my battle buddy for the past year. And, uh, we actually worked out and met for the first time on December 4th of last year. So coming up on that year, which was awesome. Okay. Well, yeah, well, that's a pretty cool story. And that's, you know, it's those are common themes that we hear about MVP and being able to make that connection and and do that kind of piece. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more about MVP in just a second. So, and again, I just, I want to say thank you for sharing that story about your transition coming back and some of those things. Um, And obviously as you tell your story, hopefully it makes it easier, like you said, uh, for others to uh, that know that there's people out there who will listen to them without judgment um, and to, to ask for help. So, um, you know, one of the things that we uh, kind of pay attention to is just this mindset piece. And we primarily focus kind of on the athletic side of things, but obviously mindset in corporations and work and business and life and all that kind of stuff. So um, a lot of our, our kind of work with athletes is kind of meditation based, you know, around mindfulness and some breath work and visualizations, affirmations and all that kind of stuff. And I just wondered, um, you know, if anybody's done some work you have, because you've been paying attention to some pretty um, hefty issues, you know, and you've been sorting through these things. So I just wondered, are there uh, kind of mental skills of that nature that you rely on that really help and in that regard in any kind of way? There's a, you know, I, I do still have a hard time, like just sitting still and, and keeping my mind like completely at peace. Like my brain just does not stop. And, uh, but so, so for me to just sit there and, and truly meditate is I've still not been able to like truly like clear my mind. Um, but what does, what I am able to do, um, is I, uh, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll take, you know, just force myself to like take a few deep breaths concentrate on slowing my heart rate. Um, and you know, just in through the nose, out through the mouth and, and just really concentrate on feeling my heart rate, heart, heart beating and, and just like consciously trying to slow it down. Um, so that's, that's one thing that, that I've found that, that, you know, and, and again, it doesn't work all the time, like in a busy, you know, if I'm at, at work and there's a whole bunch of people around or something like that, but when I'm on my own and I'm like in my own head, and spinning. That's something where it's just like, okay, I just need to slow my heart rate down. I just need to calm down. Um, so that's, that's one thing I've done. Uh, but what I, what I really, what I'd really love to see, and this is something I'm actually working toward. Um, I'm working with a, a group called rise together to bring legislation to Los Angeles. And, and part of the program is a, ma- a massive part of the program is to, to help with the homeless crisis that's happening here. Um, but a big part of that is, is veterans. And when you consider that the army took nine weeks of basic training and seven weeks of advanced individual training to turn me into what I, you know, essentially turn me into a weapon. Like they put a weapon in my hand in the first week. And basically whenever I had that weapon, I was referred to as a serial number, the serial number of my weapon. 
And, you know, zero one zero 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 one one shot, one kill, zero zero two aim center mass, zero zero three, one shot, one kill. So you're literally chanting this every time you put your weapon away, just normalizing killing, normalizing talking about it, normalizing being a number. And so truly, like, like I said, truly feeling weaponized. And then they use you for however long you're in. And then you're just out. And they don't teach you how to turn it off. They don't teach you how to unload it. They don't even teach you how to turn the safety on. And, and, and your chain of command actually, you know, at that time, like ridiculed you for like needing mental health. Like, oh, what are you, a pussy? And it's like, and, and I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the movie. Um, oh my God. What was that movie with, uh, I can't remember what it was now, but it basically, you know, the, the commanding officer goes, oh, we can't have the guy seen someone like you here, like at the VA needing mental health. Uh, I, I think it was, thank you for your service. I think that's what that, I think it was that movie. I think I was, uh, I, I, anyway, it was a few years ago, but that being said, and that was the mindset um, at that time. And it's just like my, my goal and what I'm working toward with this, this organization called Rise Together is we want to create a city funded program of peer to peer counseling, where it is a 12 week transition program. Once you come out of the military, it's like, you're getting out of the military, come to Los Angeles. We're going to help you. We're going to help you with your transition. We're going to help you with group counseling. We're going to help you with peers that are, have transitioned out and by peers. I mean, veterans who have already gone through this program and are now paid by the program to help other veterans transition and then teaching them job skills, guaranteed work either with the city as part of the peer program or with private companies that are partnered with us to do that. And that is our goal is we want to start that here in Los Angeles. Uh, the money's already in the budget. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, taking it out of the corrupt politicians hands, which is craziness. Um, but, uh, but that is our plan is we want to model this program in Los Angeles and then make it more of a national level. And then hopefully like someday my goal is that this will be required before you can transition out of the military is a minimum of 12 weeks while you're still paid by the military, while you're still under UCMJ. So you're under chain of command and they know you have to go to your meetings. You can't just sit on your couch and get drunk. You can't just sit here and collect unemployment. No, you have to go to your meetings. You have to go individual counseling. You have to go to group counseling and you have to, um, and then having veterans who went successfully through this program, who still live near that base as that peer to peer counseling. And then at the end of the 12 weeks, they get an evaluation and determine whether or not they're actually de-weaponized yet to the point where they're not a danger to themselves or anyone else. And that is literally my number one goal on everything I'm working toward with veterans started in Los Angeles and get it to the federal level and get it. So that it's part of the military out processing program. Okay. That's amazing. So, and what's the name of that again? What's, what's it called? Rise, what? Rise together. Rise together. Rise together. Okay. So if you will send us, if they have a website or any links and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. All right. And we'll put all that in the show notes for that. Um, on your on the mental stuff, so breath work is certainly something really important to us. So the only thing I would suggest to you is, uh, uh, you know, the definition because I work with all kinds of folks that can barely sit down. You know what I mean? So let alone think. So when you say like I can't fully meditate because I can't clear my mind, just know that hardly anybody can. 
you know, so uh, all meditation is, is sitting there paying attention to what is happening, you know, and you're trying to like, just kick your mind into neutral, but uh, thoughts come and go for everybody, emotions rise, all that kind of stuff. And so nobody has that, you know, pure kind of quiet pond or whatever you want to think about it. So it's all good. It's just kind of sitting there paying attention to it and then not getting pulled in and letting that one go. So, but anyway, all right. So I thank you for sharing that. I would also, uh, I would also offer like, as someone, I mean, I think my, my brain ping pongs a lot. Um, I think in different ways, maybe than yours does, but, or maybe not, but, um, either way, what, what helped me the most was instead of thinking that I had to like clear my mind and that it had to be free of disruptions or other thoughts was just giving it something else to focus on. Um, you know, and so some of the meditations that actually taught me how to sit still are the busiest things I've ever done, but it's, a break and focusing on something else besides like this constant loop in my mind. So whether that's like my ego or my old stories or like some karma or some trauma and things that are coming up or even a fucking to-do list. Um, it's like, if I can get my mind to focus on a mantra or a number or like how you said your heartbeat, that's usually what I use as my count. Okay. Um, but even just using that type of stuff can be really helpful and make you feel like you're doing a ton, you know, and, and it's like, you're not shutting your mind off at all. You're just giving it a different rhythm to yeah. move to. And that can be really, I can send you some meditations if you want to. That'd be awesome. And if you want to work on it, let us know. So that's kind of a non-gratis, you know, just to do a little breath work and just like short little vignettes. So right. we're glad to help in any of those kind of ways that we can. So, all right, before we kind of wrap. So again, I appreciate, thank you. I hadn't heard about rise together. So I mean, that seems like that's a no-brainer and like somebody should have thought of this maybe 50 years ago, but you know, that's just me. I don't know. So that's pretty cool. So I'm really glad to hear about that. I look forward to hearing more. So we're going to put that in. Um, and I just want to read the mission statement for MVP again, because we try to do that as we're giving them a little plug with this. Empowering combat veterans and former professional athletes by connecting them after the uniform comes off, providing them with a new team to assist with transition, promote personal development, and show them they are never alone. So... We do hope that any message that comes out today is, one, we acknowledge how hard all this stuff is, two, that there's no problem struggling with it because it's not easy, and three, there's a lot of people that care and want to help if anybody's listening and uh, to let us know. So anybody that's watching, all our contact info is out there. You can DM us or email us or anything, and we will try to do everything we can to get you up with the right people. So um, we really appreciate those things. So. Okay, anything else either about Rise Against or MVP you would like to add before we kind of move toward wrapping up? It, it, it's Rise Together, not Against, but... Oh, <laughs> um, you know but, what? Show me your tattoo, though. Show me your that, tattoo. But that being yeah, so, said, that, what's that? That's my favorite band. It's called Rise Against. <laughs> oh, so, got sorry. it. It's <laughs> just kind of a... Like, yeah, so anyway, um, sorry. But, but um, you know, one of the things that you said there in that MVP mission statement... Um, that that rings so true to me and has ever since my first day is is that loss of identity when you take when when you when you step away from the uniform whether it's as a professional athlete and and there's been Olympic athletes there's been former pro athletes that have been you know part of it and and it's just that that complete of this is what I strove for for so long. This is how I identified myself. This is who I was when I looked in the mirror. I am this person. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, and you don't even know when it's going to come. Like it, it catches you by so much surprise. And you're just standing there staring in the mirror with just this, who am I? And... um. 
And from sitting in that circle with athletes, with other veterans, and to know that I wasn't the only one that had that moment was exceptionally powerful and freeing. Okay. Well, very cool. All right. Uh, And then, hey, just checking in. So we usually do two tickets uh, for MVP athlete. So we got a home game up in Levi's this weekend. I know you're down in LA. Are you planning on coming up? Are you going to be able to, or? I I wouldn't be able to make it this weekend. I do have uh, some obligations for the holiday. Okay. So I think it's January 9th. Yeah. So we play the Rams, uh, I think on the 9th, but it's in January sometime. So let me know before, give me a week's notice. And so if you're not coming up for this week's game, because we'd love to shoot you, but you got to wear some Niner gear. Don't be wearing that bullshit Rams stuff. All right. Oh, I am. Would never wear. I would never wear. My my roommate is a Rams fan. He gets so pissed when we go to to 49ers Rams games because there's more Niners jerseys in LA. And now SoFi is literally like 15 minutes from me Um, because I live in Manhattan Beach. So um, yeah, no, I cannot. I would love to to be there. Um, And that's actually the two times we was at the Coliseum. uh, The two times that I got to go on the sidelines. All right. Well, cool. So uh, just that week before, shoot me a note if that's going to work in your plans and we'll figure out tickets that I week. Will. Okay. Absolutely. Make that <laughs> okay. All right. So we will take care of that. You're going to send me some stuff on Rise Together. People already have the links for MVP. So we're all good on that. So we will, uh, so we do part of our donation each week. Uh, we do that. And so we can kind of chat about that. So we can either do Rise Together and or MVP or split it or whatever. And we can talk about that later, though. You can let me know. Okay, but we'll uh, we'll make that donation. And so we'll do that. And we're honored to do so. And um, I guess I just also want to, again, just say thank you so much for sharing the story, uh, multiple stories and that, that transition for you, both your experience while you're in theater and then on the way back and that. So uh, we appreciate your service and the sacrifices that you've made uh, in sharing this with us. And then... Uh, Maybe for that Rams game, maybe we come down, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe we could get an MVP meeting in if they'll let us sit in. I don't know if that's – I don't know if we qualify or not. But We can make that happen. Or at least we could do the workout or whatever. I don't want to put – you know, whatever, but it's all – No, no, I I guarantee you'd be perfectly fine being in there. They'd love to have you. Yeah. All right, so maybe that would be a way to kind of connect, you know. That's on uh, Wednesday nights. Yeah, okay. So, well, extra couple days in L.A.'s – not always bad, you know. I mean, I could probably... Emma's not going to mind. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good. All right. Well, then, um, so our closer, um, Dustin, because you've talked about some difficult things today, you know, and that's just the reality of war and our lives. Uh, but we want to end on kind of a note as at least some of the things in your life right now that you're either looking around to or participating in that give you hope. Uh, just as we're kind of, you know, shutting this thing down. So what are the things right now that are giving you hope in your life as you're looking out? Uh, you know, the merging vets and players um, have, have absolutely been loved this organization since, since day one. Um, and, uh, and now with my work that I'm doing with Rise Together um, and, and the opportunities that that you know, the, the opportunities on the horizon that if we can pull this off and the, the changes that it can make to the transition of our veterans out of the military service, um, that really inspires me. 
Um, during COVID, uh, this was something that also really helped me. It was actually during COVID, during the, the, the lockdown, during the pandemic, quarantine, whatever you want to call it. Um, I actually um, started taking some acting classes. And it was awesome because it forced me to explore and tap into emotions that I hadn't allowed myself to feel. And, um, and so that, you know, I, I actually, uh, shot with, uh, vet TV, uh, like two months ago. Um, and, and it was just really fun, like being around some other veterans and filming some spoof sketches, uh, from, from real shit, from real, real type experiences and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just, it's become one of my favorite hobbies of just, you know, whenever I can, I just, you know, do something with that. But, but it has been so helpful for me and therapeutic for me to to explore that stuff it's it's really like your whole story has been really interesting how you just kind of like fell into these therapeutic things you know and like for me fitness is like bible like fitness you know what i mean like i've been a gym rat since i was 17 yeah (laughs) right so it's like like that is second nation or me and i know it's not to everybody else but even acting like that you're having the awareness to kind of bring that energy to it is is really cool and um you know maybe a little divine shall we yeah. say fair enough well what is, do you still play volleyball at all emma what do you still play volleyball at all Ooh, i do are we about to get in a sand league or something well we <laughs> when it's not nfl season we shut it down during nfl season but when it's uh when it you know like February through August, we play every Sunday. We just walk down to the beach because I live like four blocks from the water in Manhattan Beach. And we go down, we take a couple coolers. We have like anywhere from 15 to 30 people that show up on Sundays. And we go down, we just do like a round robin of fours and just have a blast. So if you're ever down here on a Sunday, come on down. Yeah, I mean, I might just be like reliving my 24 hour fitness glory days. Like, hey, come work out at my gym, 24 hour <laughs> fitness, come down to the beach, play on the sand. Dude, college Emma is game. ready. She is ready. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really well, fun. Okay. All right. Lugu, you want to add any uh, hopeful things? Ooh, uh, yeah, I guess I kind of the thing that I was thinking was um, I think it's like, for me, hope lies in um, when I can kind of give it to myself and when I can, um, when I can put kind of some words to my emotions and identify with what I'm feeling and then that I know how to move my body. And I think it's, it's interesting to kind of hear all these MVP stories and how different, people um who have gone through like so like vastly different things that I've ever gone through or ever experienced um rely on the same type of like therapeutic energy and I guess um the other thing would be um just how you said like as a personal trainer and then as in your acting class and then like just showing up for other things like you were forced to talk about things and I think that something that like a dialogue that has been going on in my head lately is like, you know, the, the doubt, the darkness, like the shadow energy kind of creeps in when we start to bargain with ourselves about, is this really that important? Or do I actually need this? Or is it like, you know, like what's one day, right? Like what's one day, what's one meeting that I missed? What's one time that I'm not on my mat. And it's like, that adds up. And something that we always say is like, you know, 
you're on an elevator, right? So you're either going closer or farther away from the life that you want to lead. And I think that like when people are hurting and I know there's like all these different levels of it and you know, I'm not trying to tell, try to like fit people into a box or anything, but at the same time, I think being like forcing yourself to show up and be part of something bigger um, or even if it's just to one other person can make such a huge difference in getting all these like heavy emotions and energies out of us. Cause like for me, like when I'm feeling really anxious or I feel like, like for me, it hasn't really been a ton of depression, but like I can catch some serious anxiety vibes. And like, if I let myself sit in them or if I try to take that energy on and I'm like, and I identify with it, that's when it gets really dark and heavy. And so when I can see this just as like, energy that I have to move through my body. So whether that's talk therapy, yoga, breath work, or, you know, sitting at, we have a Zen center where we live. Thank God. It's so great. Um, but any of those things, it helps me to just move the energy through my body and not identify with it so much. So that was a really long winded answer, but, um, hope and being forced to talk about your shit. That's a move your body and talk about your shit. That's, that's my answer. (laughs) Number one, talk about your shit. (laughs) If you hold it in, it'll eat you alive. Yes. All right. Well, <laughs> well in the, yeah, that, you went you went off there, Em. What the hell? So anyway, okay. And the only thing, the hope I I'll just add this is the kind of rub for me. I think over the last number of years, because I've always been the workout for me has always been a way to bury that stuff, and you feel like it cleanses your body because it does it releases it. But I think what I learned in that it was a form of spiritual bypass for me because I had the stress and I had anxiety, and I don't mean to share you know like with combat stuff. I don't mean that, but you know, just life and all those kind of things. We all have our traumas, you know, no, I don't look down on anyone just because their stresses and their life experiences were different. It just, it's all relative to your life. Right. Um, You know, but what I learned from that is that I would cleanse it. And so it felt, you know, my body felt relieved because of the exhaustion and the fatigue, the sweat and all that kind of stuff. But then what happened was I really wasn't circling back and dealing with the underlying emotion or the mental stress and all that kind of stuff. And so I think it's good to, and find to kind of use the the movement in that way. And I think meditation can do that too. A lot of people, because I think when I first got into it, like the breath work was really good and I could do the mind kind of stuff, identify with my body and I could push all that stuff out, but I really wasn't walking into the fire. You know what I mean? Where the, where the ship, you know, the core of what was causing the stuff that I had to deal with. And so I think that's part of that balance. And I think the hope is maybe the fitness stuff. And I think that's why MVP kind of fits that together. You know, you do that kind of release, you're calmer, you're a little relaxed, you're a little bit more in touch with your core self. And then you can sit down and have those harder conversations where you have to identify thoughts and emotions and share it with people. And it's kind of in facing those fears and those pains and the wounds that we carry and then being able to share them with other folks in that way. And same stuff that you were talking about, Em. I think that's, you know, the pathway at least a little bit toward that healing process, you know what I mean? And so, but just, I guess the hopeful thing for me is encouraging folks, you know, whatever obstacle or whatever you're resisting, there's a reason. And I'm just going to tell you that eventually it will come back to you. So you might as well go right into it and just take care of it. So enter the, walk into that fire. And, and people have heard this one, my favorite quote, one of them from Joseph, Cam- Joseph Campbell, that the uh, treasure you seek the most is in the cave you most fear to enter. And, uh, you know, if you want peace, then you better open that cave up and take a dive. So anyway, okay. Well, Dustin, we've been rambling. Jeez, Em, look at us. Well, I want to add one more thing, one more thing. Oh, here we go. But I think 
that's so interesting in what you say because like so many people when they like are reaching out to me about like yoga stuff or like mindful awareness or anything it's like they don't know where to start and I think for me what I found is like there's no right place to start but like if you can move like if you see this shit that you're dealing with as energy and that you just got to move it you know wherever it is and sometimes you can identify like for me like anger lately has hit me here like just right like kind of my neck a little heart area but just like right in my chest and it's been really this like strong sensation every like lately this is where it's been and so for me it's like if I can just identify with that and then move my body and move this energy and sometimes it's literally just going for a walk and like not being on your phone exactly Bruce <laughs> exactly <laughs> so cool you're so move cool. it baby release that energy but like that alone can be the starting point you know and and for me like when I so I try to do therapy weekly if not bi-weekly but like for me, I always try to exercise and move my body before because otherwise I go into it. It's like when your pores are clogged and you just can't sweat and you can't breathe. They're like, some people talk about not being able to cry and they just like need this release, but there's like something blocking them. For me, the key to that is my physical body. And if I can move it and shake that up, like that's, that's a place to start, you know? And that's something that almost everybody, like you can move and breathe and wiggle, like (laughs) wiggle, like Bruce just did just getting those endorphins released is so mm-hmm. just enlightening and, and up, uplifting. Yes. So, okay. All right. Em, anything else? I don't want to cut you off. You're kind of, Oh yeah. Rolling. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. I'm good. So, okay. Dustin, check the schedule. You're going to let me know the week before as to the game. And I'm then in. you're going to send me, uh, we've got all the MVP stuff, uh, but any of the rise together stuff, if you want to, we'll throw everything in the show notes and we'll take care of that and we'll do that up. Okay. And so again, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, thank great you show. I really enjoyed the chat and glad you're doing thank well. You. And uh, we look forward to meeting you in person. Hopefully we can do that on the trip to LA. Dude, that would be amazing. I'd love that. All right. Well, very cool. All right, man. Take care. You too. Good luck thank with you everything. Again. We'll stay in touch. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, that wraps up another episode of the Hidden Pearls podcast. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for uh, showing up, being present with Alex's story. Super great. Um, Love him. Love Rachel. Love her the most. Um, And then also thank you to Dustin for being on and sharing his story. Um, There's a lot of energy in this show and there's a lot of really powerful tools that I think we really got into. So, you know. It takes a lot of courage to show up for our shit and to really be present with what's going on. And so if you are walking that path or you are on that journey, just know that we are sending you lots of love and compassion and um, that you have a resource and a team in us if you need it. And so we consider you all part of our family and we're super, super grateful uh, for everybody who makes this show what it is um, from our guests to our listeners to anyone out there. So thank you very much. Um, If you would like to do us a favor and leave us a review, um, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Um, If you want to find us on Instagram, we're Hidden Pearls Podcast on tiktok and facebook hidden pearls podcast and then on twitter we're hidden pearls pod i don't do a ton with our twitter but if you want to be on there you can check it out um and yeah so anything that you guys need or you know if you're feeling a little disconnected or maybe a little lonely for the holidays um just know that you have us and we hope that these episodes bring you a little bit of hope compassion and maybe some light into some 
times that may seem a little bit dark. So with that, we just want to say thank you so much uh, for being a part of our lives, for being a part of our show and go Niners. Mm-hmm.